Hello there, and welcome to episode two of Battle of the Pilots. I am Graham Raddings, and I am joined by my good friend and curious televisual observer, Adrian Mills. Uh, that's on my this- CV. In this podcast, we reach into the extensive back catalogue of TV shows from over the last 50 years and pluck out a couple of pilot episodes for a head-to-head battle. To ensure we can crown a champion, we take a curious, funny and waspish look at both chosen TV pilot show episodes, discussing their relative merits or demerits and scoring them out of 10 for key themes or categories such as story, characters, music, vehicles, visual effects and influence to eventually settle on an overall score. In the end... One pilot show will emerge as the leader of the gang, while the other one will pick up its football and go home because it's upset. For this second episode, we have chosen two classic wheel-based vehicular action shows. That's not the catchiest name for those. (laughs) It's really not. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Tonight we bring you the better named Knight Rider versus Street Talk. Let battle commence. Indeed. Let it commence. Indeed. So before we get stuck in, before we get too far, we need to know what the hell these two shows are about for the uninitiated or for anyone that hasn't got a clue what we're even talking about. Adrian, please explain to us in detail, or relative detail, what the hell we're doing. Well, we're looking at Knight Rider versus Street Hawk. These are two, as you have said, vehicular action shows from the early 80s. It's a niche category. It's a niche genre. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that wasn't how they were sold to the networks. <laughs> Absolutely. What you got? What you got planned for us? A vehicular action show sold. <laughs> um, you had me at vehicular. <laughs> oh, vehicular. <laughs> anyway, Knight Rider. Knight Rider. What is Knight Rider? Well, according to Wikipedia, Knight Rider is an American action crime drama television series. That's worse than our description. Created and produced by Glenn A. Larson. <laughs> The series was originally broadcast on NBC from September 1982 to April 1986. The show stars De Hoff, David Hasselhoff, as Michael Knight, a sleek. (laughs) Not a word I would use. That's a wiki word. That's a wiki word indeed. And modern crime fighter assisted by Kit, an advanced, artificially intelligent, self-aware and nearly indestructible car. Mm, nearly indestructible. <laughs> yeah, nearly indestructible. So technically destructible then. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You either are or you're not. Uh, if it bleeds, it- we can kill it. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. <laughs> uh, this was the last series Larson de- devised at Universal Television before he moved to 20th Century Fox Television. All that way. I know. We just so over the over the road. You could see he could see his previous office from his new office. <laughs> and he was always posting horrible post-it notes till we went in there saying, I, I put shrimp behind the radiator. Um <laughs> the pilot was titled Night of the Phoenix and was in two 40-minute episodes, which is what we are looking at. Well, in our episode in this in this podcast. Um yes. Street Hawk is an American superhero television series. Mm-hmm. Better name. <laughs> Not, not, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> a, bit ma- for- bit of marketing spin, maybe that one. That one okay. <laughs> Just a bit. Superhero. Uh, uh. aired for 14 <laughs> episodes on ABC in 1985. The series is a Lime Kiln and Templar production in association with Universal Television. Essential characters were created by Paul M. Bellow, or Bellus, Bellou, and Robert Walterstorff. And its core format was developed by Bruce Lansbury, who had initially commissioned the program's creation. This series was originally planned for the fall of 84, Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central. However, ABC executives changed their minds when the summer series Call to Glory did well and Street Hope was pushed to mid-season. Street Hope made its debut on January 4th, 1985 on ABC at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, and it ran until May 16th, 1985. So not as long. That's what we're looking at. 
So one's a bike, one's a car. That's what we've got. One's a <laughs> yeah. superhero, one stars a sleek modern crime fighter. <laughs> Words that have yeah. never been said about Street Hook and Knight Rider before, ever, ever, by anyone, ever. Not even no, the person who wrote them. And when it was pitched to the people that actually made these shows, they're like, uh, are you sure? Who that's what it in- says. Well, that's what it says. All right. Who have you got in mind for Michael Knight? Oh, David Asselhoff. Hmm, he's sleek and modern. <laughs> Get him in. <laughs> <laughs> he's so sleek. <laughs> he is the sleekest, honestly. Absolutely. It's like he can cut through water like a knife. <laughs> so we're going to dive into some categories, like we said. For this particular episode, we have chosen the story characters, the vehicles and stunts, music and sound effects, the cinematography, and the reception and influence as our master categories in which we must make the decision about our relative scorage. We're going to score those out of 10 once we've decided, debated, discussed the relative things about them. <laughs> so let's get on with it then, because you know what we've talked about, the old vehicular things. Let's Sleek. see what they're actually all about. <laughs> let's go into our first category, the sleekness and the modernness, <laughs> the modernity and sleekness of our very first item. Now we're going to discuss the story and characters. So, Adrian, please tell us now a little bit about Knight Rider and its Knight story Rider. And characters. Okay, well, welcome, Graham, to the shady world of Michael Long. <laughs> the names have been changed to protect the innocent. <laughs> no, this is not an aptly named that- porn star, but an undercover cop <laughs> on the case of a dodgy businessman deep into industrial espionage. Dun, 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 dun. Opposing as the businessman's chief of security on a night out in Vegas, things go all kinds of wrong as his partner, Muncie, is shot and killed <laughs> and Michael is double-crossed by the real villain of the piece, Tanya, the businessman's... I thought she was his wife, but she's not, is she? She's just his girlfriend or something. Yeah, Yeah. In the middle of nowhere, Michael is shot in the head. Uh, He chases him out into the desert, and he's in the middle of nowhere. He's shot in the head, and he's left for dead. But Michael Long is lucky in many ways. A strange, mysterious, and very rich old man in a helicopter, Wilson Knight, played by the evergreen Richard Basehart, happens to be passing by. (laughs) Like you do. (laughs) In a helicopter. He's looking to set up FLAG, the Foundation for Law and Government. An organisation to step in when direct action is needed. I don't know what any of this means or something. Anyway, he scoops up Michael and takes him back to his local castle. And I do mean castle. They have, loads, does, of yeah. in, they have loads of them in Nevada. Loads. It's looking at, it's ca- look at they have Nevada based castles with complete medical facilities for the facially <laughs> Absolutely. damaged. Absolutely. Anyway, back at the castle, Oscar Goldman from the Six Million Dollar Man operates on him. And Michael's look is even greater than we first thought, as we learned that he has a metal plate in his forehead that stopped the bullet from entering his brain, but deflected it out through his face, (laughs) (laughs) thus giving us the need for plastic surgery and a whole new look. That visage now belongs to Michael Knight. And although we may never know what Michael Long looked like, despite him being a police officer and there probably being any number of photographs of him throughout his life, we soon see that Michael Knight (laughs) is a dead ringer for David Hasselhoff. That's lucky. Sleep. That's blatantly lucky, that. Anyway, the benevolent old man dies and bequeaths to Michael Kit, the Knight Industries 2000, a souped-up and sentient Trans Am. And Michael, supported by the brains behind the car, Devon Miles, played by Edward Mulhair and his self-aware quiff of hair, (laughs) <laughs> Heads off for revenge on the people that left him for dead in the desert. <laughs> it bloody is self-aware, isn't it? Goodness. It really is. Those people run a company called Comtron, which is the most, you know, the, the, the most obvious name for a computer company ever, Comtron. <laughs> yes. It's not, they, they not mixed Tron. Two, it's not Tron, yeah. They've just mixed a couple of, com, couple of keywords there, haven't they? Yeah. Electronics, communications, Comtron. 
Comtron, there you go. And he's looking for Tanya Walker, played by Phyllis Davis. And she's the woman who shot him in the head back in the Nevada desert. Whilst evading the law by pretending to be deaf uh, and Kit getting eyed up by the local stereotypical (laughs) racial thieves, we meet perhaps the most important character in the show. The jukebox in the bar. And it sure plays some good tunes. We see it loads of times. There's loads of shots of that jukebox. Loads. I don't know why. Every it's very, time. Popular. very popular. Aside from that, Michael teams up with Maggie, uh, played by Pamela Susan Shoup, uh, a disgruntled widow uh, of an ex-employee of Comtron. After a brief dark drive, um, Michael decides to take part in his st- destruction derby to get close to Tanya. Luckily, this allows us to see all the cool things Kit can do as Maggie's kid sneaks into the car and presses buttons. Ably assisted by a portly stuntman, Michael wins the derby, earning the ire of the goons hired by Comtron. Said goons beset him at the bar, overseen by the jukebox, but Michael takes care of them off screen and ends up in prison. Kit breaks him out and the pair of them, showing a wanton disregard for gravity, break into Comtron. Michael confronts Tanya, where he finds that she's trying to make it out with a newly designed bubble memory unit. But it all goes wrong, and he gets shot again. Whilst leaking precious <laughs> fluids, Michael chases Tanya to the local airport, where Kit disables the plane she's on by driving into the wing, causing it to explode. A group of stunt people run from it, and then Tanya tries to shoot Michael again. But Kit is bulletproof, and the bullet ricochets back, killing her. The police turn up, act nonplussed, and Kit and Michael drive away, thus concluding Night of the Phoenix Parts 1 and 2. It's overly long, <laughs> stretched out to two episodes, but the burgeoning relationship between Michael and Kit works okay, and just about carries it off. The characters are the characters. They're all they're very much of a muchness in this. I give this an overlong six. Yes, yes, I think that's a good score. I think you're generous, really. Yeah, maybe it was a five, but I think I hoped it only because I think it didn't really need the bizarre, the bizarre um, <laughs> creation of Michael Knight. They could have just found him injured. <laughs> It didn't need it to have his, you know, his face shot off, but it did damage his hair, which is always interesting. <laughs> well, that's because it went down. The bullet went down. <laughs> it went down through his face. When he gets out of the car, to when Michael Long gets out of the car to arrest them at that scene, it's all dark. You can't see his face. Luckily, they dubbed it. <laughs> the fact that apparently they didn't, originally they didn't dub his voice over with, it was originally Michael Long's voice, whoever played him. And then, well, but they later redubbed been. it over. But they later redubbed it over. So when you hear that voice, it's actually Hasselhoff. David Hasselhoff, which is stupid because we've already seen Michael Long and heard him speaking. Yeah, thankfully though they uh, obviously they did that to make sure that the you, know, you were you were we weren't so easily fooled by the the darkness and so you couldn't actually see his face. <laughs> it's really weird that scene. It's like just being arrested by the shadow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Stop right there. Oh uh, yeah. So so a lot of interesting characters there. Good, interesting, weird, if a bit convoluted story. Lots of uh, justification for things that need to be done in pilots, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I didn't quite understand half of it. I was like, "Flag? What? A? Eh? Why was he in the? Why was he in the helicopter flying around at that point?" And then he says, "Because he actually says, he goes, oh, my God, we're too late.' What was he doing? <laughs> he does. There's a lot of unanswered questions in that. Um, I've, I mean, the few, the few that I've, you know, before I obviously dive into street, or the few I've got are um, why does sound a ginormous penny whistle sound when he ejects people out of the car because <laughs> he just goes it- <laughs> was that necessary kit <laughs> you don't well, have to well, do that every time <laughs> to be fair he doesn't talk to michael halfway through it because he gets annoyed doesn't he, he gets uh he, he, he goes off he, he, well he goes off into his computer world in a huff well um, yeah and to be fair also you know michael does fall asleep at the wheel which he blatantly tells him is going to happen <laughs> It does. And then pretends to be deaf. And then pretends <laughs> to be deaf to evade arrest. It's random as best. That. Random at best. I know what I'm going to do next time I fall asleep at the wheel on the M25. <laughs> if I kill loads of people. So what? Eh? Hey, sorry, I was deaf. I got deaf, I've got a crick in my neck. You leave him alone, he's deaf. Oh, all right. I think. That, that prevents yeah. him from seeing things, does it? All right, okay. Whatever. Yeah. Very you odd. drive like a deaf person. <laughs> that's, that's fine. 
They can see perfectly well. Anyway. <laughs> they can. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, uh, should I give my score now or should I give my score at the end? I don't know. Uh, yeah, you, we can we can do a score. I mean, I gave it six. What I can put scores You gave in, it a six. Yeah, I mean, for me, because of its convoluted silliness and because the story basically makes no sense in Knight Rider, because he is, <laughs> if, it's, if it's not really explained, I mean, Ellie gets shot in the face by Tanya, but, you know, there's real weird sequences where he, he he's trying he tries to sneak into their office. I'm just not sure what he's really trying to achieve. He's on the, on the back of working with that woman who he barely, he barely knows, who just sort of takes him in and like, yeah, come in, you know, I'm... My husband was your husband killed by the baddies, I think, wasn't he? And so yeah, you know, um, but you know, and so he just sort of takes them under his wing, even though he's never met them before. He's got a new face, so he doesn't know his limitations, you know. And uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so yeah, it's not. I think, uh, yeah, I, I actually gave it a, a five because I thought it was really, and it's also it loses its way badly. I like the end. I like that the idea of her shooting at the car and getting shot by the ricochet. That's quite cool. But the fact that he was in that car bleeding to death for hours. I mean, he manages to <laughs> take out an aeroplane with the car. You know, just, well, he just it, breaks an aeroplane with a car. It is, well, don't forget, just before that as well, he has just jumped through a truck as well. He is, and he's a very indestructible car, apart from, it seems, um, he needs to do unnecessary stunts. I'm pretty sure, because he goes on two wheels, doesn't it, during the... During this, oh, yeah, the, that's, um, when gets, that's when he gets um, helped by the uh, overweight stuntman. Yeah, the stuntman guy. The stuntman. It's not Michael... Yeah. <laughs> Stop David Asloff in that car at that point. They put him in a curly wig. So no, I gave it a five. I think it's uh, there's too many too many sillinesses. But you know what? We're going to talk about street hockey in a minute. So I, I'm happy to drop to a five. That was my original point. Okay, five, so I'm, I'm happy to go with that. Well, let me tell you about the story of street talk then. Mm-hmm. So as we've already said, this was created by Paul M. Bellew and Robert uh, Walterstorff. They also, by the way, wrote Quantum Leap and The Incredible Hulk, or either some episodes of that. Developed by Bruce Lansbury. By the way, that is the, I think, brother or relative of Angela Lansbury. Oh, cool. So that is is Murder, She Wrote, Angela Lansbury's cousin. And he also works on Wonder Woman, Knight Rider, of course, as well, Book Rogers. It's very incestuous, all of this sort of... Yeah, they're all just working in Hollywood at this point, aren't they? TV. Yeah, it starred Rex Smith, but we'll come to that. He was this, and he was apparently the first person to ever play the Daredevil character. The, you know, the modern Daredevil, but not the modern version, obviously. So mm-hmm. it was also got Richard Venture in it. It's got John Regalbuto in it. Oh, Joe Regalbuto. I think that's how you say his name, Regalbuto. He played Darius in Sword and the Sorcerer. <laughs> just, put that, <laughs> well. just putting that out there. Anyway, our story starts with a daring drug heist. A daring drug, well, it's a, kind of a heist. For reasons that are not fully explained, the security forces of the police are just transporting cocaine around in this. Anyway, <laughs> um, we'll yeah. get to that later. A, a security armoured vehicle is chased by a jet black armoured pickup with tinted windows and ambushed by two stunt motorbike riders dressed as wasps um, that drive out of the back of the pickup. <laughs> they're bright yellow. They're very yellow. You're not missing them, are you? No. You know, the, the police are oblivious to this. What are they doing, those two wasp-dressed motorbike enthusiasts, anyway? So you could spot those, I think, from space, but never mind. It's a bit of obvious what they're doing. They shoot out the tyres, blow the bloody doors off the van, and zoom away on their motocross bikes with 50 pounds of cocaine. 50 pounds. That's a lot. It's a massive van for transporting such a, you know, anyway. weight or money? That's it. That's, no, that's not 50 quid's worth. That's not, <laughs> it's a wrap. That, that'd be a big, big, big van. It's like a tiny little bit. That seem, seems like a very big van for that. No, it was fifty pounds in weight. It's heavy. Oh, that's, that's quite that's quite a lot. Yeah. Anyway, however, their robbery hadn't gone unnoticed. Possibly a sting or just plain luck. Either way, police cars and a helicopter are soon pursuing our two wasp disguised criminals in a high speed chase. Pretty exciting stuff. Through the streets, the markets, the endless crates and boxes, destroying so many vegetables in their path, <laughs> it's crazy. The police chase the two robbers to some kind of underground sewer tunnel and then lose them. The wasps have escaped. That's what they do. The angry police chief. 
who seems to only travel by helicopter in this, leads the investigation to the robbery, <laughs> remarking does, that... It does. <laughs> <laughs> remarking that there doesn't appear to be many police officers attending the scene of the crime. It turns out the roller, and this is really stupid, by the way, a stunt show where a reluctant hero-to-be, Jesse Mack, is performing a daring motorbike jump over several police cars for some kind of a bet. Watched by, well, the rest of the police force, it seems, and with his best <laughs> yeah. friend Marty playing Bucky. Jesse, dressed in a weird stunt suit and cape, zooms and leaps over the police cars. Since the event is broadcast across the police radio, the inspector quickly gets wind of it <laughs> and flies there <laughs> to catch Marty and Jesse in the act of blatant misuse of police property and time-wasting. Hiding in the background and filming the whole stunt is Norman Tuttle, who we discover is a, a special engineer for a secret government organisation leading a project called Street Talk. They've been watching Jesse all this time to see if he has the right stuff. <sighs> anyway, Jesse and Marty get suspended from duty for two weeks and so promptly go out to do more stunt riding while suspended. <laughs> yeah, I'm sensing they didn't get the seriousness of what they'd done. While leaving Jesse behind to fix his broken motorbike, Marty heads off across the desert to get to Devil's Kitchen, whatever that is the place, I guess, and in a crazy stroke of unbelievably bad luck, stumbles across the money <laughs> drug exchange of the previous robbery. What are the odds of that? Very, um, very here low. We meet, here we meet Anthony Corrido, played by Christopher Lloyd, believe it or not. Yeah. A gangster type leading the deal. Upon seeing Marty on his bike, they all start shooting badly because not one of them hits him, leaving it to Corrido to get in his armor pickup and run him over. <laughs> yeah. You don't see that, by the way. This it's is off just screen. You know, it's all off screen. Off screen lots, of this, lots of stuff is yeah. off screen in these shows. I just think it, it would have been easy to shoot him, but all right, run him over. In the meantime, Norman introduced himself to Jesse, giving him some insight into the whole Street Hawk project and asking if he wants to be involved. Talk about your timing, your bad timing. Jesse turns him down, rides off to find Marty, only to come across his dead body. Moments later, the armoured pickup appears. Jesse freezes, because I feel he could have easily jumped out of the way, because it does seem quite slow <laughs> when that truck's <laughs> arriving over that hill. It's like, ah, truck slowly <laughs> coming. Ah, truck slowly coming. Uh, like, anyway, yeah, Monty Python, isn't it? <laughs> Holy grail. <laughs> so uh, he could easily jump out of the way. He didn't jump out of the way, though, and the pickup smashes into Jesse. No, fade to black at that point. Dun, dun. Jesse survives and is airlifted to hospital. We have a transition, and Jesse is next seen stepping out of a police car returning to work after some time has passed. Now, only he has a walking stick and a clear limp. He can't ride anymore. And for some reason, he's also aged his choice of outfit as he is now in brown chinos and a plaid sports jacket with elbow pads. That's right. The pickup had hit him right in the fashion sense. Awful, awful business. Yeah, he's also plagued He's also plagued now as well by uh, an inordinate amount of uh, motorbike uh, police who just happens yes, to always yeah. drive past him all <laughs> yes, the time to, to remind him what him. he can't do <laughs> yeah. Jesse is alarmed once he gets there to discover that there is little to no investigation to the death of Marty's friend other than internal affairs and he's upset they think that Marty might have been up to no good he was suspended because he was committing a felony with police equipment never mind that Jesse also finds out he is now a public relations officer for the police as knee injuries now prevent him from being a motorcycle cop he is not best pleased and makes it makes a point of telling everybody for the rest of the uh, entire pilot. Everybody. Here, we also meet Sandy McCoy here. I didn't write down who plays Sandy McCoy. I did, actually. It's Jenny Wilson. She's not been anything else. Also a public relations officer who describes setting up the police celebrity golf tournament as one of her many duties. Not the most <laughs> exciting thing, is it, that? Anyway, her role here seems to be the moral benchmark yardstick against which Jesse rebels in terms of his role in the police force. Anyway, Jesse also meets Police Commissioner Thomas Miller, who seems very welcoming of Jesse. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, don't he mention, is that who mentions the golf again? Yes, yes, I'm looking forward to seeing you on the golf tournament. Talk, talk yeah. about golf tournaments in this. So is, <laughs> that the, is that the only PR they do? Anyway. Considering like he'd been suspended for wasting time, now all they're bothered about is golf. <laughs> true, true. 
And also, it seems a bit mean to be talking to a guy that's just been in an accident with a limp. Looking forward to the golf tournament. Yeah, you're not playing it because you won't be able to swing that golf club very well, will you? Not with <laughs> yeah, that limp. Can't put, no weight on can't that put, knee. You'll fall right no back. Weight, no, no weight on that <laughs> knee, yeah. You're no golf player. Anyway, <laughs> no uh, golf you're, player, you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Jesse, luckily, still drives a car. A muscle car, in fact, which I would imagine puts a nail on a strain on his knee, but never mind. Um, so I, I don't know. Anyway, he's confronted again by Norman Tuttle and once again invited to join Operation Street Talk, this time offering Jesse a new experimental, non-FDA approved, expensive prosthetic knee surgery <laughs> as a deal sweetener to get him on board. Handy that, isn't it? Imagine that. You come back, look, I'll tell you what, we'll fix your knee. How about that? You can, you come ride this motorbike or what? Um, although he doesn't know it's a motorbike at this point. which He doesn't know anything. Doesn't know anything. Anyway, Norman takes Jesse to his, well, I guess you'd call it a lab workshop. It's some kind of weird off-street warehouse full of expensive looking lights. I think you'll find it looks like the bridge of the Star Trek Enterprise. It does, it does that's what he says, isn't it? Inside Norman, I've called him normal there. Inside Norman, <laughs> normal, reveals a highly technical command center spotting lots of blinking lights, computer screens, and futuristic looking stuff. It's his master control module from which he can monitor the whole city. Nothing weird about that. Uh, no, nope, nothing at all. <laughs> Just monitors the whole city. It's all good. Norman then reveals Street Talk, a futuristic motorbike. Well, a motorbike. Why is it futuristic? It's just a motorbike. Just a motorbike with some plastic on it. Yeah, yeah. Or an all-terrain pursuit vehicle, as Norman calls it. Motorbike is what we call it. ATPV. I know them. Yeah. <laughs> or a motorbike. Yeah, which is held in a convenient display, including dry ice and spotlights. That's pretty handy, <laughs> wasn't it? And a, and a stereo. He set up for that exact moment. And here's Street Talk. Wow. That's very elaborate. Uh, you know, well, you could have just show me. Take a blanket off it. <laughs> Zed Gafreese in the background. <laughs> anyway, Jesse takes one look and is on board. A peculiar montage of hospital surgery and gym exercises ensues with Jesse <laughs> yeah. and Norman, leaving Sandy to wonder why Jesse isn't showing up for work at all, or at least doesn't appear to be around. It's not clear how long this training period is over, but Jesse's fully repaired and his knee is back to normal. Meanwhile, Norman also extols the various abilities of Street Org. It's near frictionless, <laughs> fitted with special hydraulics for on and off road. They're called uh, suspension to you and me. <laughs> Uh, so it does that automatically. Ooh, cruising speed of 200 miles per hour with computer-assisted hybrid drive in excess of 300 miles per hour. Aerofoil super brakes. They're just making stuff up crazy now. With near instantaneous stopping. With that, unfortunately, your lungs and your internal organs <laughs> would be on the outside of your body if you braked at that distance instantaneously, but never mind that. But Jesse's also told it's, in, it's uh, too complex for one person to control. So Jesse rides, but Norman monitors. Sounds like an 0800 number to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, but he monitors it with all close circuit you video. Be monitored while you ride. <laughs> and I've got this some, number. Some of the more complex modes remotely. He is also told of the compressed air vertical lift system that will shoot the bike 30 meters into the air. 30 meters is really high. Really so high. Really high. Importantly, it's like about five stories. It is high. And, and importantly, Adrian, and for reasons of massive foreshadowing, Jesse wonders what would happen if you hit the vertical lift and the aerofoil brakes at the same time. That's an yes. important thing, important note. Because Norman says it would theoretically make the bike do a mid-air backflip. Dun, 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 dun. A mid-air back... Okay, it would be extremely dangerous, though. Make, it might make even notes. kill the rider. Yeah, it <laughs> makes notes, yeah. Mid-air backflip. Mid-air backflip. I'd never need that. Um, Jesse then gets on the bike, only for the eject system to flip him dangerous through the air. And bear in mind, remember, he is technically disabled. Um, and the bike needs to be programmed. <laughs> Norman says to him, the bike needs to be programmed for you. Ha ha. Anyway, Jesse is again reminded that the project is secret and that he must continue his day job and wear a leg brace as a ruse. I think you can just fake a limp. You don't need to put him in some kind <laughs> you've, of You've got agony. trousers on. <laughs> 
<laughs> and no, nobody's going to mention his limp anyway. You know, it doesn't matter. You'd want him to get better anyway. It doesn't matter about that. So yeah. no one can know that he is Street Hawk. Street Hawk is him. Nobody can know all that. Back in the land of the normal, Jesse is also still struggling with the death of his friend Marty and the lack of investigation and evidence. He senses something is not as it should be. After he finds Marty's bike in the storage area, smashed in and covered in paint, a black paint, which he can't identify by looking at it. Mm, it's just black paint, isn't it? Anyway, so Sandy also confronts Jesse at this time about him not being at work. And he tells her that he's investigating his friend's death in his downtime, like you do. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. Corrido in his mansion, including what... <laughs> now, this is weird, this bit, because there's a view where it goes to Corrido's mansion. He's got like a you know gangster mansion, as it were. And as it pans across, it looks like it's just a dead woman laying on one of the sun lounges. Yeah. It's really weird. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that aside, um, he's, he seems to be dealing with the police commissioner and issuing in demands. He wants another setup. It's clear that there's some kind of dodgy dealing going on between the police commissioner and these massive drug heists. Oh, my mm. Lord. And he also makes it up that Jesse is sticking his nose in. Mm. The commissioner says he can handle it and leaves and to set up the next deal. Corrido, however, doesn't buy this and instructs his men to kill Jesse. Now, Norman shows Jesse his helmet. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. It's the, it's the fright itself. <laughs> it's the fright itself. 800. <laughs> With all of its fancy gadgets, including HUD, zoom in for a view, it even disguises his speech to make him sound like he's gargling with marbles. He then baths Jesse in bubbles, which is, this is where it gets a bit weird for me, which he does. Um, and that's what it looks like. And apparently, so he can create a special suit for him. Mm. Yeah, get him yeah, a bubble bath there. He has to be skin tight. So skin tight. <laughs> so skin tight. He also shows Jesse the high energy particle beam weapon which while he's in the bath, essentially, which I feel is not necessarily the full <laughs> health and safety presentation that requ- is required for a powerful laser weapon. Anyway, nope. apparently its power can immobilize a truck or a person. A big difference. It also fires rubber bullets. Oh, what? No, that's that's the thing he pulls out, isn't it? That's the uh, yeah, little, no, yeah, sort of but little device thing. Yeah, yeah, useful, that. Rubber bullets, when you've got enemies that are firing metal ones at you. Rubber no, you bullets don't want to kill great. anyone. It's, you know, it's a... Yeah, I suppose so. Anyway, uh, and again, moving quickly on into the normal world, Jesse's attacked by suddenly one of the wasp bikers that we saw at the beginning, manages to evade that, um, leaving the police commissioner angry with Corrido for not leaving the situation. Corrido reminds him of his place and threatens to kill him if he doesn't deliver the shipment details for the next hijack. Norma discovers the pattern of police cocaine hijacks, because he does, by looking at a large collection of uh, <laughs> dot matrix printouts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and thinks this would be a good test case for Street Hawk. Cue the powering up sequence and Street Hawk is on the streets. Music playing, zooming around. We're 40 minutes into the episode now, by the way. Just saying, it's mm-hmm. a, of a pilot, a single pilot. The Street Hawk is then seen going through a bunch of tests, pursuit mode, wheelie slow motion and hyper thrust, where Jesse is shown in a super fast motion zooming around the city at 300 mile an hour with the lights whizzing around him. Very trippy indeed, I thought that part. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse then, in a scene very reminiscent, of, very reminiscent of Robocop, intervenes in a robbery and zaps the getaway car. The police show up and think Jesse's somehow involved. He does look a little bit mysterious, albeit with a jet black outfit on a mot- mysterious motorbike that can fire lasers, but okay. He's not a vigilante <laughs> or anything. Jesse takes off and hits the fly button and just flies over the police cars. He could have just turned the bike around and driven away, but no. Anyway, the media get wind of the masked man flying away from the scene and the quiz the police, wondering if the masked marauder, as they've labelled him, might be a vigilante. No shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> a, a jet black motorbike rider that could leap over police cars and fire lasers. Nah, he's just, we'd, we'd, that, we'd tell you what, we come across 10 of them every night. Nothing, red beams nothing... of light, as they describe it. I think, <laughs> the word beams of Correct, yeah, red beams. Meanwhile, the paint is identified off his friend's bike and Sandy starts her own mini investigation in an attempt to try and help Jesse. She ends up finding the right place where the, the car that hit Jesse's bike was fixed, but is caught sneaking around and looking for information by the police commissioner randomly. Um, he just happens to be there at that time. Lots of convenient timing, bad timing here. Norman yep. finds out there's another delivery planned, of course, by checking his uh, his big 
spreadsheet list, his big documents, his pages, because <laughs> he walks around all the time with pages and pages of dot matrix printouts, <laughs> and gets Jesse and Street Arc on the case to take recon pictures only. The robbery goes ahead with Carido and his black truck waiting to ambush the police. This time, however, Street Arc shows up and Jesse sees the truck that ran him down and decides against the will of Norman to pursue the robbers on bikes, which he does to the tunnel we saw from the first part of the show. Jesse lasers the doorway this time and enters those tunnels. Meanwhile, Norman calls the police to wait at the other end, uh, telling Jesse to back off. He does, and the bikers are apprehended. Street Talk returns to base and tells Norman what he saw. He then agrees to help identify the owner of the truck by super scanning, doing this, you know, the classic zoom. It's actually one of the first times I think I've seen it on the TV show like this, where they zoom into a picture of a thing and it goes and they get an instant, you know, high-res version of the mm-hmm. number plate. Something something that becomes a trope for many, many things. Meanwhile, the kidnap, kidnap Sandy is taken to Carido's mansion. Norman and Jesse identify Carido, and Jesse locks Norman up uh, because he wants to go on it, and he, Norman doesn't agree that he should be going all gung-ho. He breaks the controls that, of the master control thing that Norman would have, so um, takes Street Talk out and then basically steals it to get his revenge or slash justice for the death of his friend. At the Carido mansion, Jesse breaks in, chases the baddies, gets blown off Street Talk. I have to say that carefully. Because <laughs> um, he gets kind of a bomb goes off and blows him off the motorbike, so kind yeah, of a weakness there. It does, it does. Yeah, yeah. So, so the one weakness of uh, this motorbike is, of course, if he gets knocked off it in any way, that's it. It's just a guy stood around in a motorbike suit. Um, <laughs> Sandy escapes handily off and helps suit. Jesse overpower the henchman by hitting him on the head with a shovel. Ouch. Which Carido makes escape. a really silly noise <laughs> it does. as well. Bang. It's a proper bang. It's a copy comedy moment, isn't it? Credo tries to escape in his truck, of course. Jesse pursues in Street Orc with Norman's blessing by now. He's now helping him and chases him to the edge of a cliff after a long and complicated chase involving, again, some crates that are just in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. The crate count in this is high. And they're just in the desert. They're just stacking crates in the desert at this point. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no reason for them to be there. Anyway, he tricks Carido into sort of ramped off, driving at him and ramming him. And as he does, of course, guess what he does? That's right. He uses the turbo backflip option. Mid-air backflip <laughs> is what yeah. I've written. Handy that he remembered that. Remember, don't do the mid-air backflip. The mid-air backflip. The mid-air backflip. <laughs> Button. Jesse needs go. a new knee. Jesse needs a new knee. <laughs> Did I leave the iron on? Did I leave the iron on? To be fair, um, she anyway. does actually do that look, the uh, woman in it at one point, where he has <laughs> a go does, at her. Yeah. says, you used to be a reporter. Don't you want to get to the truth anymore? And she goes, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just camera just pans yeah. away. There's a, little, there's a little bit of that in this, isn't there? A little bit of uh, yep. uh, a bit of hammy soap acting. Anyway, obviously, Jesse backflips out the way, and the Carido goes flying over the cliff edge um, into his doom in his armoured vehicle. I sense that the armoured vehicle would have maybe been a bit more safe when he went over the cliff. Maps kept Made the cardboard anyway. boxes. Yeah, it just shatters anyway, smashes to bits. The remaining police, after this, uh, the police remain adamant that Street God was just a vigilante and that he operates outside the law. And they also state that they hope they will never see him again. And they, in fact, they say we won't see him again. Jesse and Norman, however, go, <laughs> yes, you won't see him. And that's the end of that. There, there. <laughs> that is the end. That's the end of the pilot. Of Street Talk. All said and done with its weirdness, convoluted story, and some of its sort of plot for convenience moments, I actually gave it a six. But what about you? Okay. I've made some notes, obviously not as exhaustive as yours. My first note is to never play a sidekick of ethnic origin in the pilot episode of a TV show, as you will invariably (laughs) not make it to episode two, or even act two, because both of them die. Both Muncie and, what's his call? Mickey. 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 They both die in this that you know that they used for oh, sorry, Marty. Revenge or, Marty. Marty yeah I did note that from a character point it's nice to see a couple of I mean it's moved a couple of years on it's a bit more of a diverse cast it's not great but in comparison to the car thieves in Knight Rider who are the only 
uh, yeah, that's pe- terrible. People of ethnic that? origin. It's good to see the main reporter in this is black, so at least there's uh, yeah. you know, they're they're doing something. And the sidekick who else helps him out as a woman. There's no women, and there's that one woman in thingy. There's the, the evil woman, mm. and then there's the there's the basically it's the without sort of thing. There's the the whore and the you know the matron, the, the maid, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In in yeah, Night yeah. Rider, that's Damsel it. Damsel in distress thing, kind of thing. Isn't yeah, it? there's nothing more. This first bit more interesting. It's typical origin story stuff. I thought revenge, injured, comes back, gets his gets his uh, you know superpowers. But it, I did think. It's good to see Christopher Lloyd in an 80s football manager coat. He, he did wear that, didn't he? He does. At the, enough, at, yeah. at the, at the, and it also cracked me up. The bit that made me laugh the most was where he's doing the drug deal at the plane at the beginning and the two guys are just stood next to the plane. He just hands it over and they just go, yeah, it looks good. <laughs> yeah. The QA isn't a big part of their... Uh... <laughs> They're like, what? Well, do you not want to check it? Do you not want to do the finger dab that everyone everyone does? <laughs> yeah, do the odd... That's pure. Yeah. That's pure. That's 100% sugar. My problem with this main thing I do is just is Jesse Mack, Rex Smith. He's not good, is he? Yeah, he's not, he's not a good. For, he? He's not a good lead character. I mean, the, him and Norman's relationship and acting together is pretty, pretty poor, yeah, I thought. There's moments when they try and sort of play off like Norman getting exasperated with him and he's over-exaggerated. It's almost pantomime-esque it at is times. Very, yeah, and, so, very, yeah. and that's funny because I think the guy that played Jesse, he was, uh, I think he's an ex- Sort of because he did. I think he played Danny Zuko on the stage for Greece. So I think he's got a bit of a music hall background, which kind of, yeah. sort of shows, doesn't it? Yeah, it's not great. It's not great. I, I gave this a four for story, Ooh. but um, yeah, I thought this was worse just because for if it's story, if it's characters and and story, the story is convoluted nonsense. It makes no sense. Why are they wasps driving around? <laughs> it's all stupid, yeah. as you said. Why are they trying to? Who's moving this cocaine around for no reason why are the police not doing what the student of attending a stunt stunt ride just so we can see that he's good on a bike yeah there are ways and ways they could have done that and kept it in situ which is like have a bike chase yeah you and know. yeah you're right and also it takes ages to get to street orc it's like yeah, it, it takes ages to get there whereas at least with night rider as stupid as it is you get to kit pretty quick yeah it's about 20 minutes in yeah, yeah 15, whereas 20 40, minutes you're, 40, in. you're 40 minutes into an hour just over an hour and i think it's now hour 10 isn't it yeah. So yeah, you know, yeah, well exactly. over halfway through, and before you even see like C Street Orc. Yeah, so, you've had a lot of yeah. talking about it and a lot of things, and there's like you know, there's a bike comes out in dry ice, and it's like, oh, but, you know, yeah, when are actually, we yeah. when are we get into the fireworks factory? <laughs> <laughs> to quote Millhouse, that's what I kept <laughs> yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, thinking about it, and so this, I think that it's sort of pick, obviously the pace picks up in the last. It's a it's a better last act than Night Rider. Because of yeah, the chase. That's where everything happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's what I mean. So that bit's better. But you're right. The preamble takes forever. Whereas yeah. in Night Rider, the preamble doesn't take forever, but it just meanders at the end. It doesn't quite know quite yeah, what the, to do with it. There's a destruction derby and a, and a pointless prison breakout for no that reason. Prison breakout. I forgot. He just drives. <laughs> Night Rider. Kit just, Kit just breaks him out of jail by ramming into the jail. I was like, all right. <laughs> yeah. You can't, yeah. you, can't just, you can't just go around doing stuff like that. And for sure. some anyway. reason, they choose that point to humanise one of the uh, one of the guys from who's beating him up, who was trying to beat him up in the bar. They do actually, yeah. They just sort of want to weirdly. Give him a bit of, just, you know. It's really odd, very strange. Yeah. Oh, we need to work for him. But yeah, I didn't think this. Was, I, I mean, I, I'm happy to meet in the middle with a five. Yeah, okay, a five. I think then I'll I'll, I'll happily come down to a five. I think yeah. they're both sort of they're both sort of mid eighties average. So five for the yeah. pair of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, this puts us in a difficult position, though, doesn't it? At this point, because well, it's all even stable. But one's got a great beginning and not so great ending. One's got a crap beginning. You know, so they've got kind of they've both got their issues, haven't they? Ooh, yeah, it's yeah, going to be tricky. It might, it might come down to other things then. Okay, even Stevens, it is at the moment. Even Stevens. Mm-hmm. So let's then move on to the vehicles and stunts that appear in each of these, and let's have a look at those. Mm-hmm. 
So I'll start with uh, a look at some of the details about the vehicle, vehicle really, and vehicles that are in uh, Knight Rider. Go for it. So um, the car used as kit in the series was a customized 1982 Pontiac Fiber Transam. Cost apparently $100,000 to build. Nice car. Mm. Bit of an American stalwart car. We don't see a lot of Pontiac Firebirds in the UK or anything like that. So from you, from a UK and in some ways European perspective, Knight Rider looked way more futuristic to us than perhaps it would have to our US compatriots, I think. Maybe. It was that it's, sleek, it's, black, bullet-looking thing. Yeah, it's the same it? car in Thingy, isn't it? Um, uh, Smoking the Bandit. Uh, no, I don't know. You'd have what, to look at that. I'm sure that's know. a Trans Am. Mm, could be. Could be. You, do, you, need, you need to do your homework there okay. on which cars, because I've got a feeling that's a Mustang or one of that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Either way, that's not what kids. So it's it's got a obviously a very futuristic look. There was a total of 20 three kits that were made for use in filming the series and wow. so it's quite a lot of money isn't it, <laughs> no, mm-hmm, it is. all except one of these cars survived oh i feel like i've just <laughs> <laughs> no all kits were ha- survived all, all, all kits were harmed in the making of this show yeah. <laughs> well all except one of the cars survived until the show was axed all except five of the remaining 22 cars were destroyed at the end of filming seems mean that does seem a bit excessive what if they want to make another one Oh, we blew them up. <laughs> so uh, during Knight Rider's first two seasons, Kit was based obviously on the F-bodied Pontiac Trans Am with minimal alterations. And it was dressed up by Universal's prop department. The major change were the red strobe lights to give the car life, or in other words, to give you a kind of a nod, I think, to the Cylons a little bit. There's definite Cylon noddage there in that mm-hmm. sort of kind of thing as it was interacting with Michael. Um, but not much else um, made Kit stand out from a standard Trans Am, apart from the interior, which to me looked like they'd glued loads of 14-inch TVs to it. Um, there's loads <laughs> of TVs in there. Loads. Um, so, uh, and also, by the way, Pontiac, who didn't even want them to refer to that car as a Trans Am, because they were a little bit horrified. And I think they got a bit of Homer's car syndrome when they saw it. Like, <laughs> yeah, goodness me, what have you done to that? <laughs> that beautiful car design, and you've kind of glued TVs onto it and made the handlebars look like a, a, an arcade game. Anyway, so um, again, they cost up, each of those cars cost about eighteen thousand dollars just to modify in its own little ways. It's a lot of money spent on the car, which obviously is obvious because mm. it's the whole principal thing is about the car. In the pilot episode, there's a few set piece stunts and an occasion where Michael races Kit, and obviously as we've talked about in that demolition derby, I say race. I got the impression that they just drove very carefully around because <laughs> <laughs> they've obviously got a hundred thousand pound customized sports car, and even though at this point they wouldn't have had twenty three of them. I'm guessing that they said, right, we're going to be in this demolition derby. Nobody actually hit the damn car. Um, because it's going to, And the only thing it's going to do is a stunt where it's going to go on two wheels because that's the only thing we dare do in that car. Because if we yeah. break it, we haven't got another one. And that's the whole show knackered. So he drives, because that demolition derby, they're all smacking into each other, the other cars. It's just demolition cars, but not Kit. The Kit just drives around like an ice cream van. Well, don't forget, he does stay at the beginning. Like, you know, nothing can hit it. He's got, perf- you know, he can yeah, true. He has, avoid, he can avoid an avoidance system. That, that, which brings me to my other point: is don't take a car that has that to a demolition derby, which is also complete. Yeah, and also which is completely underwritten by the fact that the first thing Michael Knight does is drive through a wall garage. Yeah, he does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he does. Yeah, the, I'm sensing the collision avoidance system needs a bit of work. <laughs> you know. <laughs> or Michael doesn't hear those words because for some reason when he was brain damaged slightly, those words were erased from his understanding. So he doesn't <laughs> well, understand the deaf. idea of collision. Yeah, he is deaf. True. He's deaf. So obviously, like you say, um, Michael Knight, or should I say uh, David Hasselhoff, doesn't perform any of his own stunts in any of the show, and nor does he, apart from where you see him driving some of the vehicle, actually drive the car. Generally speaking, the car was mounted. There was a few occasions when a car was driven and filmed which is where you see Michael driving from point A to point B in a very extended, long, 
what looks like a car advert sequence, but they've got to sell the car at this point and the futuristic look, and it's the bit where you see the car. doesn't really, at this point, do a lot of its fancy stuff, though. It just drives. Yeah. That would be a perfect opportunity for Michael to press some of the gadgets and buttons and show what it can do, because he even says, let's see what it can do, but doesn't, just falls asleep at the wheel. I'm guessing it's not an exciting drive. <laughs> Which is really weird as well. <laughs> it's really weird. I'm just going to get in this futuristic car in the future. Oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> can we, should we shop at a services? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to take a break. Have you got any Red Bull in here? Because I'm, I'm feeling, oh, I'm just going to nod off for a while. I'm nod off. And then shout at the car when I wake up that I'm still alive <laughs> yeah. and not gone off a cliff. Because, of course, he doesn't really like the car at this point, does he? Like Michael and Kit haven't really established a good bond at the moment. No, they have so not. So they're, they're a little bit odds with each other. I think Michael sees Kit as an interfering AI, I guess. I'm not sure he has any basis for comparison because it's not like he's driven around in a futuristic <laughs> space car with a talking AI before. So he just seems re- randomly annoyed at someone. Backseat driver, bloody backseat driver. <laughs> Um, um, but obviously, anyway, the falling asleep that Willie, obviously, so we thwarts that by pretending to be deaf, bit weird, does the occasional stunt. There's a bit where Kit drives around with nobody in it. So Michael is actually not, you know, he leaves the door wide open, just gets out and leaves the door. Who does that? Nobody does that. For, nobody for, gets out of the car. Two, uh, two ethnic car thieves just uh, yeah, wandering just, by. Like, yeah, just wandering by. Go, hey, tell, tell me, take a go and drive in that car. <laughs> it's just dodgy as hell. But yeah, it, it really you, is. You, there is no point, in, there's no place anywhere where someone just drives up to someone, just leaves their door open as they get out. It's just, it's so stupid anyway. Of course they get in it. So there is a bit, there is a bit of stuntage there where um, Kit opens up its flaps, which is unfortunate that it has those, <laughs> but it opens up its flaps and obviously ejects the two would-be car thieves out at the police station with its penny whistle sound. Yeah. Um, so there's a bit of stunt work there. So there's a few people stunts. I think considering this is a, I mean, obviously there's the, the, the main stunts that you'll see in this are the main stunts you're going to see throughout Knight Rider, which is Kit using his turbo boost, which means he can potentially just take off and fly a bit like the sort of street cut, street cut does, but yeah, not, I'll, you know, I'll come no to backflips, that. I'll but you can come okay. to that. But there's, there's not that. And it always seems to be at least one car high, which is handy. No, <laughs> Kit doesn't, you know, Kit never goes too low and smacks into the, every car. Always one car high. But yep. it is made made a point. I think at some point he says it can jet turbo jet in X amount of distance and all this stuff. So you know that it's going to do those things. It does. That, But that's a stunt with a guy right, driving up a ramp or if it goes on two wheels, that's some, you know, clever trickery. It does a lot of those things, but there's no real, like, dangerous stunts. Nobody's being dragged behind the car. None is that. There's a bit towards the end where Kit chases an aeroplane, which is on fire. Very expensive set piece, I imagine, to set all that up. But no, Kit doesn't sort of fly, in, other than knock its wing off, essentially, knock its engine off, yeah. which I think would cause a massive explosion. Luckily, it doesn't. So there's generally the stunts. The vehicle, of course, is the main kit. The rest of the vehicles in it are deliberately kept, I think, understated, so the kit always looks shiny, futuristic, and new. So the rest of the cars always look a bit like they're about 10 years old than everybody else's. There's no other sports cars they're or fancy cars. They're massive sedans, massive square blocks. They are, they're just, and I think they've just gone to the, you know, sedansareus.com. We need about 50 <laughs> or 60 we can smash up. Even in the Demolition Derby, they're all in big sedan cars, anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, so there's that final bit with the airplane. There's a lot, so they say the main things are ramps and piston jets that fire the car through the air, you know, with the stunts. There's no at-speed driving, I don't think, because I think they don't generally film it driving. When it goes to turbo speed, you don't really see it like a turbo speed car. I think it's just speeded up footage of a car doing a normal thing with it, does anything mm-hmm. like that. So, and then the only other physical stunt that made me laugh is a bit where Michael is shot up the side of a building. I'm not exactly sure who or what they did and how that might be reversed. I'm not sure whether there's bungee corded him up. It's weird. It's just weird, <laughs> that bit. It's, in fact, it's a bit stupid, I would say. But uh, those are the kind of vehicle. And the main, so the main vehicle in Knight Rider, obviously, is Kit. Everyone else drives sedan cars. Um, I don't think it's in the back of a lorry. But I think later in the show, I think it does go in a lorry. Oh, yeah, it does. Yes, they do that later, but not in this one. Yeah, no. yeah, but not in the pilot, but later they do. But yeah, 
And of course, Devon Miles just always like he's like all these boss, mysterious boss figures that work with these guys. They either they're either in a mansion somewhere talking on a phone, or they're you know they're at some ob- uh, cocktails, you know, swarthy cocktail lounge, uh, <laughs> being served drinks by some you know woman with a you know, with a bikini on, or they're inside a vehicle, an aeroplane normally on a on an aeroplane <laughs> phone going from some mysterious point A to B, but. That's the stunts and the vehicles that I found in Knight Rider. What about... Uh... Okay, well, um, I mean, you are right. It's all about the car, isn't it? And what a car. It's cool. It's a cool-ass car. It is, it is cool, yeah. And it is made cooler by having the Cylon bar at the front, which Glenn A. Larson did say to the designers, I want that at the front of the car. Yeah, I, w- I want so that he, eye. Yeah, because, I mean, he, he did create Battlestar, didn't he? So he wants that sort of thing. So he's got pursuit mode, turbo mode, drop oil. It can drop smoke. Or spin Just got out of hand when he wanted that on everything. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we're making dynasty. His, his, Can you put? Um... <laughs> yeah, as I say, he's got a bit of. He's got his wife alone for a bit of you know romantic evening. Just put this on. Oh, again. Ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> okay, you weirdo. <laughs> and also talk t- talk in a sarcastic robotic voice. Uh, <laughs> you know, in 1982, this is probably the coolest car of a t- TV screens. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. And even now, I think it, it does still look cool. There's some. De- there's, yep. There are some decent stunts through this. Some, not many. Some, the two-wheel driving in the Destruction Derby is probably the pick of the lot. Um, yeah. That is, you know, that, that's not a mean feat, even if it's done by somebody else, clearly. I I think, like you, I would have liked to have seen more kit action. Yeah. There's For just not enough. Yeah. But but I guess they only had so much budget. And But I don't know what score we're giving this. I'd probably give this a... It, cost of the car, it's hard, because I really do like the car, but probably yeah. a six. Yeah, funny enough, I gave it a six as well. Yeah, I think that's where we are. Night Rider gets in with a six, then. So yeah, yeah. it's a cool that car. It is, it's, yeah. You, you can't, you can't knock it. That's the thing. Literally, you can't. You can't damage it. No, you, you can't. It's a, he tries, but he it's, tries, it's, 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 it's almost indestructible. Not fully. <laughs> almost, almost. So Street Orc. So think once, think twice, think bike. That would be <laughs> rad. In the case of Street Hawk, this is from the wiki page because I wasn't going to regurgitate all this lot. The motorcycle in the pilot episode was based on a 1983 Honda XL500 trail bike. Motorcyclist magazine staffers Jeff Carr and Dexter Ford built the motorcycles for the pilot in their Hancock Park Los Angeles garage, combining parts from an electric start Honda 500 Ascot with the chassis of a dual sport XL500 on-off road bike. The motorcycles used in the series were based on 1984 Honda XR500 using the electric start engine of the street-based Ascot, creating the first known electric start Honda dual sport motorcycles. The stunt coordinator insisted on using the turbocharged Honda CX500 street bike for performance-related sequences, but the motorcycles actually used for the stunt shots were based on the Honda CR250 racing dirt bike. The bodywork of the pilot motorcycles was designed by Andrew Probert, and the series motorcycles were redesigned by Ron Cobb. Oh, Mr. Cobb himself. Mr. Cobb, yeah. So what's all all that mean? It means we have a motorbike that looks like a motorbike. (laughs) Yeah, it's got a very big headlight. <laughs> it really has. I'm sure that's motorbike enthusiasts. It was enthusiasts. It's amazing, uh, but it does. It lacks. You know, when they reveal it from that um, dry ice <laughs> thing, it's like, oh. Uh. But the, it just lacks the immediate wow factor of kit when kit is first revealed. There's lots of talk, as you said earlier, of coefficient things, airfoils, and friction reduced to almost zero. <laughs> All of which means very little to the average well, viewer. When you like, get on, he just flies off all the time because you can't <laughs> tell if he's sat on it or not. <laughs> True. The most interesting part comes when Jesse asks what would happen if he blasted upwards and slammed on the air brakes and if he told he would do the backflip and probably die. Chekhov's backflip, indeed. Um, <laughs> anyway, it can also fire a laser and it can light up with neon tubes. <laughs> I don't know why. Why has he got <laughs> neon tubes? But it's just not that impressive to look at outside of one sequence when Jesse first takes it out, as you mentioned. And finally, vertical lift. 
it just doesn't sound as cool as turbo mode. No, it doesn't. You know? And it doesn't but, talk either, does it? No, it doesn't talk. No, that's why he's got Norman back at the uh, back at the base and it's to talk to. As for stunts, though, <laughs> I did need to mention the amount of boxes that were destroyed in the making of his program. Boxes and crates are the mortal enemy in the show, and the opening chase through the back streets, <laughs> along with the illogical truck full of boxes at the end of the show, demonstrate a willful disregard for those poor containers. I felt Think, really of, the this... Think <laughs> that, of the boxes. Think of the boxes. That bit with the chase through the desert at the end. There's just a truck with crates. <laughs> Stack, stacking crates, yeah, in the There's middle of the desert. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? Oh. Uh, there's some smart bike riding and stuff. And a good jump over some cars at the beginning. You know, that, that is quite a nice, yeah, yeah. you know, evil yeah, communal yeah. style jump. Uh, and of course, the flip at the end, but that's all stupid special effects. Along, there's some nice car flips um, as well. Um, there's some nice car flips in the Destruction Derby thingy as well. But I think the ones in this are better when he goes to uh, thwart the second drug deal, I think it is. Uh, the cop cars go flying. I think there's a car, there's a van that goes flying. I also thought the bit, one of the best bits of stunt work in this um, is where the bikes disembark from the van at the start at full speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could, that is a good little sequence there. That's, yeah, that whole opening sequence is very clever, I thought, and really well yeah, done, yeah, yeah. and it, it sets a really good tone for it. But that 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 can't be because you see one of them wobble quite badly. Yeah, but it can't to be hold easy. On. It can't be easy to do that. No, because you've got to get up to speed very quickly. Yeah, um, and go backwards. And, no. Yeah, that's, that's really hard. So I thought that's and the pair of them do it in one shot. So there's there's uh, I thought stunt wise, there's a lot to like in this. Yeah, yeah. But so there's better stunts in this, but a worse vehicle. Yes. So again, we're in that thing, and I've given this another six. Oh, so we're double sixing again. We're double six. Well, it depends. I mean, what uh, have you given it? What do you? Well, I gave Street Hawk because I thought exactly the same as you. Um, the stunts are really good in it, but because motorbike stunts are very te- televisual by their nature. Yes. And there's a lot of them in this, but they are televisual, but they're also very much they're very similar because it's only. There's only so much you could do in a motorbike. You know, it's going to jump and do jumps, and you know, but that, but but there is that reversing out at the beginning of that moving truck, and that is pretty cool. That whole yeah. opening sequence is pretty cool for that, mm-hmm. and that's quite ambitious, and it does set a good tone. Whereas Night Rider doesn't really have anything like that, um, no, because Night Rider stunts tend to be there's opportunities where they could have really leveraged some of the tech that Knight Rider has, but they didn't. They were trying to focus on the relationship between Kit and Michael to build, and less about the car and the gadgets. Whereas at least it doesn't do that. But the problem there is, of course, that the gadgets on a motorbike aren't really that interesting. The thing that you like to see a motorbike doing is flying around and doing jumps and all that kind of thing. Mm. So again, better. it's a, not as good a vehicle as Knight Rider, but much better stunts, more exciting televisually. For a pilot, you want to watch a motorbike doing jumps and flying about and racing mm-hmm. down things. And the, there is, of course, that amazing speedy bit where he's riding his motorbike at super speed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but that's so, just all fast speed up footage, isn't it? So I wouldn't. It is, but at the same time, it's just it's just part of the aesthetic, is what I mean of, of motorbike. Yeah, yeah. You know, so mo- the riding of the motorbike and the stunts involved in it are more exciting than watching Michael Knight fall asleep in a futuristic space car <laughs> yeah. and then pretend to be death. <laughs> so, um, but like you say, but Kit is a better futuristic vehicle than. So I gave it a six as well. How weird is that? Uh, we have, wow, these are neck Again. and neck at the moment. Then they are six neck and, and neck. Honestly, you know, turbo speed split. versus turbo mode or whatever it was. Yeah, absolutely. It's a vertical lift versus pursuit mode or whatever. It's Tuttle yeah. versus Kit. <laughs> the, the, the list is endless. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go. So both on six. Yeah. Both on six still. All right. This is honestly, it's a, a proper duking out here. Okay, then. Well, maybe the next category that we're going to look at might change things a bit. Who knows? <laughs>
Let's take a look at the music and sound effects. And Adrian, over to you for the music and sound effects of Knight Rider. Okay, so Knight Rider, the classic theme to Knight Rider. It's one of the all-time greats. Composed by Stu Phillips who uh, and Glenn A. Larson. Stu Phillips we'd heard of before. He worked on Battlestar. He did the Battlestar theme. I think he also did the theme to Book Rogers as well, didn't he? He's done loads of stuff. He did loads of stuff to Stu Phillips. And this theme was, uh, you know, it's 1982. We're a bit further on than Battlestar, so it's in... So where we could clearly see the influence of that was obviously Star Wars and everything like that and John Williams. This is inspired by some very much more disparate elements. So watching an interview with uh, Stu Phillips, he said that they had used, someone had come in um, while they'd got some footage of Kit driving around and um, they'd come in with this German synth music um, mm. and said, oh, put, put this over it. Um, so they did. They tried it, and they really liked the look of it and the feel of it. It gave this weird, sort of futuristic, more you know, um, a different feel to what what they were kind of used to seeing on TV. And it felt unusual for the time. But the problem was they couldn't get the rights to use that music, so they just couldn't track it down. Or they couldn't get it, so they couldn't have it. So they went off um, to compose their own. Um, and so Phillips went away and, and came up with those 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 three parts, that three, three component parts of this tune. That bass, dudum 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 sort of underlying sort of hook that bass that bass rhythm you've got that um then there's the middle bit the and then there's the main theme but he obviously wanted those things so they hired he found three synth players so I could find three synth players so I just hired them all got them all in put the three put three elements together had someone play the drums and then we just recorded that and that's what we did so that's how it came about really but it's it's odd as well because that main tune it's not just very much that bam bam now. It's actually uh, a complete rip if you listen to this of someone called it's a Leo. I don't know how to pronounce this. Leo Delabay Delabays. It's like a 19th century composer and his song, uh, his piece, Cortez de Bacchus. Um, and we'll okay. put a link to that on the YouTube thing. And if you just listen to the opening, of that it just goes bam 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 and then goes in. It's a it's a complete it's a it's a lift. But that's all that lift. The rest of it's completely different. But they've nicked that main tune. But they've used it in such a way to go with that electronic sounding that bam da 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 and that, that. So it does work. But you know, so in conjunction with the rest of the elements, it really there's an iconic feel that I think has stood the test of time. Um and it's become one of the most recognizable eighties theme tunes. I think I, oh, without I think, doubt. I think, yep. you know, along with things like A Team and stuff like that, maybe Earwolf and things, but this is a, this is another one. So I think this yep. is a really strong contender. It's got a really good main theme. And one of the things Philip said as well was that by and it's not there's there's bits of it in the show in this episode, in these pilots as well. But he said what he could do was because they he had those those elements in the in the um uh, the main tune, he could use bits of them for the sort of for some of the stings through the through the show itself. So sometimes you'd get that bum 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 in the tent scenes or when mm. it was something's happening, you get little stings of it, or you'd get the main theme played. And so he could use those three hooks throughout the scoring of the show. And Phillips only did, I think, the first 13 episodes or 10 episodes. He only did the first few, um, then it was taken on by someone else. But he's definitely sort of set the tone and set this thing. And, and, and that theme tune echoes that futuristic style that they were going for with the car. And it I think does. that's why this really, really works well. It's not all good, though. I mean, that's great, so that's all good. Some of the other choices, there's far too much country and western for my liking. Yeah. <laughs> there's loads. That like, that bit you said where it just becomes a car advert, just driving along to country and western. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. No wonder he falls asleep. You know, it just is what it is. But it, it, And some of the other rest of the soundtrack, when it's not using those things, they sound like really typical early 80s musical stings. Yes. And musicals, you're not used to that. Yeah, yeah. Espionage sound. Espionage sound. Yeah, yeah. Or when somebody says something, find out who Michael Long Knight is. Yeah. 
It's like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you yeah. get loads of that. So Straight out of the no- uh, TV show library music kind of thing. Really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's nothing particularly great in that sense. There's some good classic sound effects for Kit. The whoosh of the turbo mode, the, the, pe- the penny whistle sound is, yeah, we'll put that to one side. But that whoosh of the turbo mode would become synonymous with that show. That psh, you'd, you'd know you'd know that noise. And the the swish swoosh of the red lights going back and forth. You'd get yeah, that the as well. Kind of sound. Yeah, so that's good. I think you have to forgive the more normal elements of a TV show made in 1982 because obviously they're at a budget and they probably couldn't record that much music so they've got to obviously go to library music for some of it i would imagine and that's what some of it is but there is an iconic piece of music in this it's exactly what we said for battlestar galactica and the themes in the show for that i gave this an eight for music and sounds yeah i think um i'm not pretty far i'm not far from exactly where you're at with it in with the knight rider it is a very brilliant iconic piece of music captures the imagination really succinctly Makes it feel kind of futuristic, sells the car. Their opening sequence with the car and the music and everything else really, really, really does sell it, especially if you're a kid watching it. You were like, I'm in. No no question it. No, super cool black Trans Am with a sort of, you know, a red glowing eye and, you know, that music, I'm in, I'm done, sold. Yeah, one of the things they one of the things I was reading was that they it was unusual because the opening sequence was like over a minute long and they found that quite weird. But they liked the music so much, and what they wanted was you heard. They said we want a piece of music that will, if you're in the kitchen, will immediately draw you into the te- the you know the lounge, the den, wherever your TV is, because you're like, oh, Night Riders on. You you did it, and they did it. It's perfect. So that's why. Yes, yes. No. Uh, so for the exact same reasons as you, the incidental music in the show is is very of its time and also very of its you know its production um it's clear yes. that they you know when you're but when you're producing a massive amount of tv episodes i imagine you know you're going to have to find music that you can license quickly easily and that's not going to cost you you know thousands every time you play it so mm-hmm. i'm guessing they did that but it does unfortunately it marries with its which will come to its kind of cinematography and that leads it down a little bit of a naff rabbit hole but it does have that music and the in, the sound effects of the car and everything else, and it's got that great engine sound. Is it? it's got that almost electronic kind of sound? Is it? Ooh, it zooms past you now. Yeah, so it's not. Yes. Like, it's not. Re, it's not engine ready sounds like you might expect. It sounds different to a car, which is very important for something like that. So yeah, yes. Um, I actually gave it a seven overall. Um, but I'd, I'd go up to an eight. I think you know based on the, what we what we discussed about the theme and knowing some of those things I didn't know about the production of it and where they got those things from. So yeah, I'm happy with that. Cool. Um, so yeah, that's an eight for uh, for the Night Rider. Mm-hmm. Um, so Street Hawk then. Well, this is a bit of an odd one, really. Um, the music the musical theme for Street Hawk was composed by Tangerine Dream and uh, and produced um, <laughs> produced by Christopher Frank. And a modified version, which was the feature featured in the pilot episode of this show, obviously, and where he takes it out for the first time. So that sequence where he first drives it, which is kind of the main theme, and that appeared on the Tangerine Dream album Le Park under the title Le Park. So it's eventually mm-hmm. worked its way onto an actual Tangerine Dream album. For those that are unaware of what Tangerine Dream are, and I'm going to con- cite, compress this history because it's massive. <laughs> yeah, please do. Please do. <laughs> um, they're a German electronic music band founded in 1967 by Edgar Fries. Um, they have a lot of albums, around 86. Um, numerous band member changes over the years, including obviously some different ones after the sad death of founding member Edgar Fries, I think back in 2015. Tangerine Dream is con- are considered a pioneering act in electronica, call it synth, ambient, whatever you like. They are quite unique in that respect, albeit that they are of a genre of that type. Um, and they're very eloquent, I think, in the kind of way they do music, very precise. And the music for this, for a TV show, is genuinely good, but it has problems which we'll come to in just a second so like i said the title track is um off the um, le parc that was uh well, it's le parc ended up using this on it 
which was their 14th studio album um, at the time. And on that album, each, oddly enough, each of the tracks is actually inspired by parks around the world. So I don't quite know how that ties into it being a motorbike thing. I don't think it does as far as they're concerned. So, but they, since subsequently after this, completed the soundtrack work for loads of, loads of things, including Sorcerer, these are films, Sorcerer, Thief, Legend, Risky Business, The Keep, Firestarter, Flashpoint, Heartbreakers, Shy People, and Near Dark, mm. to name but and probably loads of, and we've gone to, gone on to influence loads. So the main theme for Street Hawk is a is quite a catchy piece of music, but unlike Knight Rider, it doesn't seem to capture you in quite the same way. And I think it's because it doesn't shout motorbike futuristic thing. It's kind of bleak and depressing. Um, so. If you tie that in with the the main theme is obviously it's got that da 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 and it's like it feels like it's it's sort of alluding to a more of a it's because it's got a synthesized bass it's heavy, obviously all synth it feels like it's alluding to something that you never actually get to um, and so it feels like it's it's the wrong music for the wrong thing it's great music and it's really good and it's but it's not a catchy theme it's sort of the main little hook is the little da 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 and believe me you'll hear that a lot because that is played a lot in that pilot episode you know they they lean on mm-hmm. that theme a lot so you're going to hear it quite a bit outside of the main theme which is is a kind of a catchy piece and it's used at key moments all right the main synthesized sort of backdrop of the of the music for the pilot episode doesn't lend itself to what you're seeing visually very well it sort of sets the wrong kind of background it'd be like listening to a the soundscape that would suit a sort of tron type sort of digital environment better where perhaps Mm. you know there was more of that kind of stuff going on it doesn't suit streets Action, cardboard crates being smashed, you know, chase sequences, high-speed pursuits, 300 mile an hour, maybe a little bit, maybe, but you know, lots of wheelies and flying off, you know, and flying over vehicles and things like that. That lends itself to a different style of music. And because they rely on the main theme to kind of carry that, which it doesn't quite, the fallback for the rest of the sounds when people are talking and some of the interstitials are just kind of fairly dreary sounding synth landscapes. Now, good quality synth landscapes are the same. But I can see that for a TV p- pilot, it doesn't really make it feel really exciting, which puts a lot of emphasis on what's going on on the screen to carry that. So aside, outside of that main theme, which does kind of carry it, it sort of doesn't feel like it's coherent enough to work. So it's quite deep, quite synthy, but it doesn't have the punch and, and instant sort of connection that Knight Rider does. It simply doesn't have that. And I think that's the reason why if you said, if you said somebody, hum me six, no, if it said three, hum me three eighties, you know, classic 80s TV issues, you'd probably get Knight Rider, Airwolf, Airwolf in the A-Team. Yeah. They wouldn't default to Street Orc, even though Street Orc was created by an amazing German, you know, super synth band who went on to produce some amazing film themes. But even then, if you look at their amazing film themes, they're not the ones that would shout at you. If someone wants to go, someone is going to sit and hum you the near dark theme. <laughs> no, they're not. So, so, that's, so, that's, so that's my point. I mean, they're great soundtracks for, for certain things. I just don't think it, in this, it works. Now, the rest of the sound effects and stuff from there, the laser beam sound, which is the only, I think, futuristic sound, and um, the, the sort of the speed of the motorbike is kind of conveyed in, in thankfully, they don't go super high-pitched with the engine or anything like that. So it's just, you know, sounds of motorbikes revving engines and stuff like that. There's not a lot of future sounds in it. It's not got a kit sounding kind of woo woo or anything like that. It is just a you know a motorbike. Um, but I think that um, aside from it being a great track on the park, I don't think it makes a very good title track for this TV show. I think it underplays the exciting parts that should be there for something where you've got a high speed motorbike flying across things, and instead sort of creates a kind of depressing synthesized background to it that belies what it's actually a young guy on a motorbike and chasing about. It doesn't seem to have that for me. 
So I actually scored it quite a lot lower. So whereas Night Rider obviously scored high, I actually gave this a five um, mm. because I just don't feel like the sounds match the visuals. But what about you? Yeah, I was the same. I gave it a five as well. I mean, to me, I was exp- I know it's Tangerine Dream, so I was expecting something a bit more epic. But aside from the one bit where he's driving around the city, the main theme, I thought it's pretty forgettable. And I don't, I can't, yes. I, if you ask me, I've watched it about three or four times for this podcast and I still can't bring it to mind. Yeah, exactly. Right now, I'm sat here trying to think, going, "What is the? What is it?" I don't know. It's not there. There's lots of synth stabs, moody drum beats, and they create atmosphere. And it it does fit. If this was in a a sort of a mid '80s film, I think yes, yes, something a Michael Mann film or something like. It feels like it wanting to be, you know, maybe something along those lines. So there's a little bit more cinematic feel to it all, but it's not what you kind of want in a pilot for a TV show. And so it's a bit, it's a bit off. It's and I thought it was also implemented a bit hit and miss. It's not very smooth. Sometimes it just stops. Yeah, moments where it just it just it just stops. The scene stops. The music stops. Don't fade out or anything. Yep. And so nothing sticks in the mind. Nothing seems to work. It's a bit just, yeah, we've got Tangerine Dream. That's cool. Um, and as I said about Night Rider, and if the intent was to come and get you to watch the show when you hear the tune, no, it doesn't have that. I gave, yeah, I gave it a five as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, then if that's the scoring and we've got fives for Street Talk and Night Rider stomped in there with an eight. That's eight, putting yeah. that, that's Night Night Rider is just it's just nosed ahead. It has it's, little, yes. it, it's Kit's red nose has just gone nose it's he's just taken over, his turbo boost just kicked in. Goodness me. Okay, well, we thought it might happen. Now we've got a little bit of a, a discrepancy between the two. So let's take a look at the cinematography of the two episodes. I'll start with Night Rider. Mm-hmm. Um, the director of photography for Knight Rider for this particular um, pilot episode, didn't he, was Frank Bescoccia. I think that's how you best pronounce his name. It's quite complicated. He sadly died in 2016, um, but he, and at least I think he worked on the pilots. Pretty much every pretty much every other episode was um, shot, photographed, lit, whatever by H. John Penner. So Frank Bescoccia had worked on loads of classic TV, including Heart to Heart, Book Rogers, The Fall Guy, Mike Hammer, The Master. Galactica. Um, so he was clearly used to lighting and shooting TV action sets, simple locations and scenes, including fights, car chases, gunshots, lots of easy external location shots, and a very matter-of-fact color palette. Very matter-of-fact. Mm-hmm. Um, the, direct, the director of the pilot was, interestingly, Daniel Haller. Now, Daniel Haller was an ex-accolade of Roger Corman, hence credits like to his name like the Dunwich Horror and Die Monster Die. Um, but he also was a TV director extraordinaire with TV episode credits for shows like Matlock, Airwolf, The Fall Guy, Street Hawk even, Manimal, and Quincy. Loads. He has directed loads of TV. So his credits actually start way back in 1965. Um, so he was clearly a very safe pair of hands for something like this. Uh, David Ho or Howe, and William Martin were on editing duties. And again, their history, of course, is Book Rogers, The Hulk, I Dream of Genie, The Bionic Woman. So these guys were all in the league of safe hands for a TV pilot show like Knight Rider. Um, good, competent, get-the-job-done kind of people. They're not going to apply much fillers and spills. They're not, you're not going to see lots of fancy camera angles or anything like that. And in Knight Rider, it actually really shows. Mm-hmm. Um, Knight Rider itself was shot in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, um, Stockton, Santa Clarita, and Burbanks, so and mainly California, generally speaking, but also a little bit at the Universal Studios. Um, and the Greystone Mansion that was used for Devon's, that was the, uh, the Greystone Mansion, sorry, was used for Devon's headquarters in season one, headquarters. That's his mansion house. That was the, oh, you know, okay. the place, the castle, as it were. So the, generally, the lighting is always very flat in Knight Rider. You'll notice that if you really watch the pilot, well, we've watched it a dozen times, but if you watch the pilot, it's very flat lighting. 
There's no lighting for drama because they don't like for drama in TV. They generally like for telescene transfer. So the lighting is actually made pretty much flat because it's the easiest way to transfer and get the color balance between shooting externally, which was generally done on film and transfer to telescene, and inside, which was done by cameras on what what became video, but back then it was kind of a video version of it. Mm. So you've got a you've got a little bit of and the lighting for those you have to try and you know you can't light too much outside and change it too dynamically because you'd get massive contrast. And they didn't have the technology like we do now, where we can just go into you know an editing tool digitally and go right, just cr- click the fix everything button. They didn't have any of that, so they had to really think about that. So um, generally, that's how most things are lit in Night Rider. Very flat. Very like every, if you look at a lot of the TV shows, TV pilots, and that includes all of the ones I've mentioned before, they all kind of have a similar flat film style lighting. They're not lit for drama, um, which is really weird when you think that if they had them, there's a little bit in Knight Rider where they try and sort of add a bit of that. But but generally speaking, if someone's in a dark location, they light it, but give them a little bit of underlight. If someone's in a light location, they tend to light them from quite above with a big flat main light so that there's no not a lot of shadows. And that's a good thing, because if you had a massive shadow on um, David Hasselhoff, his hair would be enormous on the wall. <laughs> it would be massive, wouldn't it? So, so you've, got to, you've, got to light, you know, you've got to light the Hoff very carefully. Um, so he and shots with him in are generally lit right from the front. So you, you eliminates almost all shadow. So that's how, and then obviously they cover them in makeup and do all of that. So generally speaking, most of the scenes are fairly simply shot, actually, sort of sim- single sort of, you know, either uh, simple one shot of one, two shots or reverse shot, shot, reverse shot kind of logic. It's all very rote direction for TV, very safe mm-hmm. direction for TV. Um, and so it's not overly, overly lit. There's no lighting for drama. It's all shot very flat. It's all shot very safe. Even the first encounter with Kit is oddly unsatisfying in that respect. Considering this car zooms towards him at 100 miles an hour, it's mostly in shadow completely. You can't really see it. And then when it does slam the brakes on in front of him, it's only lit when Devon walks in and switches the light on. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, it's not, there's no lighting him up from underneath with the, you know, seeing a sort of red glow in Michael's eyes. There's no lit, it's not lit and it's not directed in that way at all. It's very much, they've got a script and they stick to very simple shot reverse shot action. They don't dramatize this in any way. Now, Obviously, Street got slightly different to this, but this is how Night Riders tends to do it. So it's all very safe TV movie of the week style, very rote. Establishing shots of buildings, then to internal shots, all very safe. So you'll see mm-hmm. outside, inside, action, generally all the time, always like that. Even when you see inside of Kits, you very rarely see, maybe from, apart from a couple of occasions, you either see it from the POV of Kits, essentially the dashboard cam where you're looking up at Michael and even he's lit flat then. So it's not like the car is dark around him. He's just lit and, and the entire car is kind of, and his head fills the screen. And when you do see Kit, obviously it's that flashing light thing that lights up when he talks, which, mm-hmm. but that's generally that's about it. So there's not a lot of inst- interior of the car. So they don't luxuriate. The car obviously is lit itself. Again, very flat. There's no, the drama, it looks like a black bullet most of the time because there's no dynamic light coming off that car. And they've done that clearly to make sure there's no weird reflections or anything. So I imagine that's actually quite hard to do to light a car that's completely jet black and make it look kind of futuristic in every location. That's when it's driving through the countryside, it just fall into Pontiac Firebird advertising, doesn't it? As opposed to it being, yeah, very much so. So Michael's not really lit, not very often lit for drama, very rare, occasionally, very occasionally when he's, if there's something like when he's in the, when he's trying to um, break into that, office building and it's all dark and there's a little bit of underlighting stuff like that but it's not it doesn't dramatize it it's just it's just generally to make sure you can see him and his facial reactions because the delineation obviously between nighttime and and daytime is very clear in this because it's the drama is so really lit that it's just light dark light dark there's no you know the balance is very clear Um, and everything then means it's it's expressed with the script and with close-ups of the actors 
talking. So that's generally how the drama is conveyed by what they say as opposed to how they look. Again, very TV, very, very rarely direct TV episodes. Mm-hmm. Aside from That's aside from when Michael Long gets shot, of course, because then for reasons, he's got no light on his face whatsoever. So they dramatize it by completely hiding it, which is kind of hilarious when you think <laughs> yeah, about it. Yeah. So that's that. How to how to dramatize a sequence, make it so you can't see it even better. Um, and they talk, they do a similar thing at the end when Tanya gets shoots at the car. She, you don't see her get shot as much as she shoots, and you hear a you know ricochet noise, and then she's you know, but you don't see a lot of that um, because again, mm. it's actually lit quite dark, and that's because they haven't lit for drama. They've just put a light on, going, we just need to see the, what's going on, you know, and so because they're talking and all of that. Um, so when the action is called for, it obviously follows the exact same path. The, as I said, the extended drive sequence where Michael falls asleep and Kit takes over is about selling the car and its futuristic aesthetic, but it's like a car advert for that bit, which I'm guessing most of these guys and people who were involved in the shooting of this would have been very familiar with. So it's all safe. It isn't challenging. Very easy setups. No real difficult angles. And I think that makes for very, very rote storytelling visually. It's not very visually compelling, Knight Rider. It's relying heavily on that car and the, and some of the you know the discussion in the script, which is quite interesting. What about uh, what did you think? Yeah, it's not its strongest point, is it? The camera work and feel of the shots is very TV nineteen eighty two. Yes, absolutely, yeah. it is. And, and there are some some awful shots in the opening LA Vegas sequence. That that, oh, that terrible that sort of montage sequence of Vegas. It's awful. Um, and then when she's taking photographs as well, there's some really odd zooms, some sort of zoom in shots of what she's trying to take photographs of, which is kind of weird. And the framing of the photographs is awful as well. The whole opening section is bizarre. And like when when he's up on the ladder fixing the light, it's just that just is what it's just it's not very good I, yeah like you said i didn't really get much sense of kit being fast or in the thing he's cool but you know maybe not um there's little use and as you've rightly brought out and, and said why there's this little use of lighting to create any kind of mood or atmosphere there's just very little the only bit is that no. sequence in the bit where you get shot the fight in the bar is, is awful the stock shots of the jukebox they also stick out quite badly um so, so yeah there's there's nothing here to make me excited in the visual sense the only shot I did like in the whole thing, and I thought this was quite funny um, because of the kind of weirdness of it, was the the graduate shot between Michael's leg when uh, Kit's oh, red yeah, lights are glowing that. in the dark. There's that. It's like that's weird, you know. Because yeah, obviously that, that was Dustin, Dustin off looking for Dustin Hoffman's legs to and mm. uh, and Bancroft, wasn't it? On the bed, yeah. I think it was. So that that made me laugh. But yeah, but apart from, apart from that, it's because uh, that actually felt like some thought had gone into a shot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're trying to tell a bit of a story with something visually. Yeah, you know, it was quite unusual because he's because that that is weird that sequence, isn't it? Because he just he just goes into a he moans because all this creeping around you guys are doing, and Devon says, "But well, you look at what you're doing." He's like, "Why has he gone into that very dark warehouse, yeah. um, into a pool of light?" <laughs> it's very yeah. strange that whole sequence where Kit is revealed. But yeah, that's at odds with everything else because the rest is very t- you know TV nineteen eighty two. So uh, yep. I gave this a f- I gave this a four. Uh, yeah, same. Actually, I, I'm sorry to say, I gave it a five, but um, I, I'll settle on a four because it is just very boring. Yeah, I'm willing to put it up to a five for that shot. Um, in fact, we'll give, okay, give, all right then. I'll, I'll Let's go for five I think then. I'll get, you know, for, I'm looking for something interesting, and I think that shot does show that maybe someone somewhere thought this, is, you know, because they didn't have to do that shot. Yeah, but, true. You know, true. and so there's 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 something there. Anyway, Street Hawk, though, is this, I think, the cinematography is probably the strongest part of the whole show. Yeah, I'd agree. According to IMDb, I mean, I couldn't find much detail, but this was shot on 35mm, so is that the usual? Um, um, I don't know that it would be for, for TV, but it's, I genuinely it, don't know. Uh, Maybe. According, it doesn't according sound to like IMDb, it to me. Yeah, according to IMDb in the tech specs, it says uh, shot on 35mm. 
And it has it looks filmic. It looks mid eighties look, filmic. It does look more filmic. It certainly looks a lot more filmic than Night Rider does. Yeah, there's a grain to it, isn't there? There's a there's a much more. I yeah. mean, I don't know if it's top quality thing, but there's a grain to the. And it starts as soon as that opening sequence of the chase through the streets with all the cable boxes and the bikes dropping out of the things and everything like that. There's a there's a feel that this actually this feels nicer. It looks as a as a yes, depth to yes, the to the um to the grain of the film itself. And I thought that that's it, you know, much better than the plainer looking Night Rider. So there are moments in this when it does belie its TV roots and, and it does at times there are moments when it looks like a film you know a film from the mid 80s I think there's some there's some bits in it that do yeah. raise it up I thought the opening robbery as I said bike chase it's got, it's got a really gritty grimy feel to the streets and back alleys that looks a bit different to what we're kind of used to seeing I think the most impressive sequence though uh, I mean I've not got the, the it was done uh, cinematographer is Frank P. Flynn um, oh, he's done a lot of cinematographer on a lot of TV stuff he was cinematographer for a lot of Hunter um, yeah that makes sense um, Hot Resort Codename Foxfire Bad Cats something called CI5 The New Professionals so there's a lot of stuff for that but he's worked camera and electrical equipment uh, things like Against All Odds he was the second unit photographer on that uh, he actually started his uh, career on Scream Blackula Scream okay um, with in 1973 Cleopatra Jones Sugar Hill oh, Foxy wow, Brown okay. so, so he w- worked a lot in like black exploitation stuff um, mm. back then but um, then did some things in the 80s but yeah mostly Street Hawk Hunter uh, things like that through that period of time. Um, so it, I, mean, I don't know much about his what he did, but that's who did it. And it does have a more filmic feel to this. The most impressive sequence happens when Jesse takes Street Court out for the first time, and we've alluded to that. But it, you know, filmed at, filmed at night, that's the first good thing because mm. it allows them to do some interesting lighting uh, yeah. and, and pull some stuff. So you've got this Tangerine Dream soundtrack. You've got the use. There's loads of use of fog. You get right right into that fog bank. Um, there's loads of steam. So steam coming out of the vents. They use all that, and that's you know, it's, if you've got to show it off, that's good. It's the you know it's, it's it's the best the machine looks in the whole episode. It's glowing neon tubes, the lights catching off the drifting steam. It's very eighties, very eighties, uh, almost sort of pop video. But it, at least it shows that try to create a feel that this bike is cool and is capable of incredible things. And then we get from here, we get the speed test, and it's the best part of the whole sh- show. It's just, yeah, it's sped up footage, but the trail lights of the cars, street lights, and both Jesse's point of view and the reflections on his helmet as it keeps cutting back to that. It's just really good. It's just it's just a damn good sequence. It's reminiscent of Koyana Skatsi, I thought, and films like that yeah, where, you, where you have where you have that, you know, you know, lots of red tail lights and you know, long exposure on these things to capture, you know, to get the tail lights and stuff. And you'll see that in some video games later on that do this sort of thing. But I, I really like that here. It demonstrates a visual flair that I think is far in advance of anything in the more workmanlike Night Rider. There's a sense of speed and dynamism in that sequence. Coupled with the music, it's it's the closest we get to kind of you know, actually understanding Jesse's motivations for wanting to ride a bike like he does. Because that sense of, you know, it's, it's a hypnotic yeah, sequence yeah, yeah. sticks out like a sore thumb. It does. But, you know, they do something different with it. Uh, there are, it's not all great. There's some moments which lack impact, such as, you know, when he's hit, we presume, in the desert, there's no shot, just a scream of, no, it's, that's not great. That's not well shot. Uh, but, you know, on the whole, it, it, there are you know some some bits of it that are workmanlike and eighties TV, but there are moments that add that do lift it up. Um, so th- there's there's quite a lot to like in this in certain sections, and some of the, there's more some more dramatic camera angles as well. Even though when the boxes and stuff go flying, the, you know there's low angles, there's canted angles, the stuff do the stuff doing it's not just flat going past. Um, and and like I said, film that filming that sequence where the bikes come out at the beginning is on a moving. Obviously, you know they're on a moving 
a car filming it, everything to keep it up. There's some good, interesting stuff done. This I give it, a, I give it a seven overall. But yeah, I think, think? That's, a, that's actually that's a pretty good um, score, really. So with Street Talk, um, I think it's clearly shot in a more filmic way than it's. Yeah. No, this is what this isn't is rote TV episode direction. The opening from the opening sequence where you you know the the angles that it adopts to tell the story of that heist you know so you see the the angle of the the driver of the sort of the police armored vehicle you see him from the outside of looking in his rear view and there's just there's some really nice storytelling going on and that's something that it does all the way through not always the strength of it it doesn't always do it as well as that but certain sequences really stand out the sequence where where jesse rides um street up for the first time like you say and and the way it's lit and everything else looks really nice but it's also it's just it's genuinely it really works and you get now it tends to be where it falls apart a little bit. It tends to be when you're actually got actors talking. Um, so when yeah. you when it's shooting, sort of you know, because even when she goes to investigate the she break well, she shouldn't break in, but she goes to see the sort of guys that are in the chop shops, doesn't she, to find out about the paint on you know his friend's motorbike, and she and that's even that's lit dark. It's all kind of lit quite dark. Crime. Yeah. The criminals are generally lit in the dark in in Street Orc, except apart from the the mansion. With Corrido, where it's kind of lit in lit old sort of flat, it goes to that kind of flat lighting, and it's weird that those kind of moments are the parts where it's not lit and done very well. It's not very scenic, although it does adopt, like you say, it doesn't just straight shot for shot. There's lots of angles, close ups. The part where he skates the screwdriver close to his eye is shot in a really quite a nice way. It's very mm. filmic, very filmic, and so I think that's a real strength. It makes for better storytelling. It's just, obviously, as we've discussed with the other elements, it's let down by other elements. But Street Talks, cinematography and its, and its, and its cinematic telling of the story are way in excess of anything that Knight Rider did in its pilot. It's a much better storytelling visually. It's far more compelling. It's the lighting's much nicer. The general feel and tone and the way it conveys the speed and excitement of that. Like I say, you don't see Jesse falling asleep on Street Talk, do you? And just nodding <laughs> off. And, it's, you know, so it's not like that. So I think um, I would agree. I actually gave Street Hawk an eight. Um, well, I'm for happy cinematography. to. Yeah, I'm happy to raise that. I think I, I put. I mean, I had three between them. So I had a four and a seven. So yeah. I think suits the same as you. But I'm happy to go with an eight as well. Yeah. Great. And what did um, we say for for Night Rider for that? It was a five. Five. So again. Interesting. Street Hawk's making a bit of a comeback there. It is. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, Street Hawk was directed. The episode was directed by Virgil W. Vogel, uh, and, and he's a. Uh, uh, he was, sorry, he died in 1996, but he was a Hollywood stalwart, a TV stalwart. I mean, he goes all the way back to um, 1956, the mole people, invasion of the animal people. And if I just go through some of the stuff he did, Wagon Trade, Burke's Law, Bonanza, Big Valley, Here Comes the Bride, wow. High Chaparral, Mission Impossible, $6 million man, FBI, Streets of San Francisco, Most Wanted Policewoman, Police Story. Yeah. Um, you know, he's just worked on everything. Street Hawk, Airwolf, Magnum PI, Spencer for yeah. Hire, Miami Vice. <laughs> yeah. So it's a safe pair of hands, um, yep. you know, in, in TV land. And in, but he also, because he's coming from that probably that 40s, 50s style, there's, a, there's, there's obviously some stylistic choices there. It's not just prepared to do the normal thing. Absolutely. And I also think a little bit that um, with the best will in the world, Knight Rider suffers from Glen A. Larsonism. Yes. Um, so, you know, whereas I think Street Hawk, because it was universal, wasn't it? It was, it was, a, it was a combined production with Universal as the sort of, I think mm-hmm. that lends itself has lent it clearly a little bit of of of. I'm not sure where they shot, shot Street Hawk either. I didn't look into it that. It was in but, LA. It was all around LA. So, but look at the difference how LA is constructed and lit in Street Hawk compared to Night Rider, and they shot basically yeah. in principle in the same places. So, no Street Hawk a clear winner there. And like you say, what a safe pair of hands. And obviously, 
clearly cinematically trained, I think, yes. just from that from that stock. So, yeah, no, absolutely. A deserved winner there in terms of cinematography. That does actually leave us with, um, they were both on 24. Oh, I knew it would come down to the final thing. And so it's down to its reception and influence then, really, to be the decider or who knows what it might reveal. Um, so before we uh, um, move on, um, we've got Even Stevens, which is kind of interesting. Mm. Um, I wasn't sure we'd be at this point. I wondered if one of knows ahead, but okay, where's well, so where we are? So the final category then is the reception and influence. Adrian, tell us about the reception and influence of Knight Rider. Okay. Well, the show ran originally for four seasons. It ran from 1982 to 1986, had 90 episodes during that time. Um, Team Knight Rider made in 1997-98 and set 10 years after the events in the first show. That focused on Flag, which was the foundation of law and government. And then there was also a 2008 reboot just called Knight Rider, and that featured a character called Mike... Michael Mike Tracer, or Tracer, who is the estranged son of Michael Knight. And in that, we had Kit again, but now it was the Knight Industries 3000 car and was voiced by Val Kilmer. I did not know that. I might know that. Random. Yeah. It was shelved after one season and never spoken of again. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> there have been films as well. Knight Rider 2000 was in 1991. Seeing, I saw Michael, Michael Knight, David Hasselhoff, reprising his role, driving the Knight Industries 4000. Kift. That didn't work. Yeah, that didn't work. That didn't work. <laughs> Kift. <laughs> that's just a joke there, Bob. I'm going to make it. Kift. So... Yeah, that's weird. Also, as well, why in the 2008 reboot they went back to Kit with the Night Rider 2000, Night Industries 3000? Don't ask. Who knows? <laughs> uh, there's been plenty of video games based on the show as well, with Ocean, Ocean's god awful 1986 release. There are also two games based on the franchise for the PlayStation 2 in 2002 and 2004, and for the PC as well. Didn't know that. So yeah, there were there were games. Of this, I mean, that, that's you know, in 2008 you got a reboot, and there's also supposedly um, the last thing on IMDb is in 2016 there was talk of it being rebooted again with Justin Lin being tied to it. I believe Justin Lin is Fast and Furious franchise. He's attached to that, isn't he? That's, that's right, yeah. That's right. Yeah, so although there's always been an element of cheesiness with the show, and David Hasselhoff, Hasselhoff sorry, is, well, you know, David Hasselhoff, the main character, you know, going on to do Baywatch and everything like that, and, and obviously he's very big in Germany for some reason. The core idea, I think the core idea of Knight Riders remained relevant during most part to the cool car and that theme tune, which is uh, has been sampled in some rap tunes as well. So it, there's a there's a there's an influence through this sort of thing. This cat this this program has retained what it was and is still relevant. People talk about it still today and still go, yeah, it was all right, yeah, it was all right, it's okay. And I think what that comes down to is the idea of the ghost traveler, the character with no past, traveling from place to place and righting wrongs. It's not a new one it's not a new theme but it's a t- it's a time served hit in tv land yep. um i was trying to think you know shows like the incredible hulk um yeah even you know the littlest hobo the a-team um even things like highway to heaven i think this is the one i'm thinking of where yeah, michael, yeah. Landon, michael landon yeah you know count, right. count, countless others they use this formula to spin out their stories there's always bad people doing bad things to good people in small towns in america and the universal this universal theme is probably why, like we said um, last time about Battlestar Galactica, um, is that, you know if you crack, you know if you hit on a universal theme that something is happening, and obviously this wasn't the first show to do it. I, I, I'm sure that if you went back, you know uh, there are programs like this going back through the 60s, 70s, but that that, that idea just works, and it even works now. You know this is not a, a new idea; it's not an old idea. I imagine I, I thought as well maybe what was the um, the 
Japanese one, the hand cart, samurai in the baby in the samurai in the hand cart. Is that similar theme as well? Yeah, baby uh, cart and river sticks uh, and the yeah, sort of vengeance. Yeah, is, is that does that fall into this? Is the characters moving from place to place? And you know, even yeah, even yeah. The, the Clint Eastwood character, the man with no name, you know, yeah, the Ronin the, you know, type idea. Kind of yeah, the, you know, and that sort of you know, the characters showing up and saving the day. Yeah, um, yeah. and then yeah. moving on, you know, has no ties. You know, makes some friends, does some stuff that has to move on for whatever reason. Yeah, the lonely outlaw kind of thing. Yeah, and I think that's why in this in this way that Knight Rider has resonated and resonated more at the time. There was a couple of that had the car. The car was futuristic. It had that theme tune. Everything like that kind of worked. And it only worked for so long. You can only so long. So only four, you know, four seasons though, ninety episodes. That's quite a lot. But it had it had these elements that all stacked up. So and does the stand does the show stand up now? I think some elements do. It's a product of its time, you know, and it is what it is. And, and it's a product. And, and I think you hit um, on a term there, though, Larsonism. Glenn A. Larson was obviously, you know, he churned out loads. We know he did, but um, there was a certain look and a certain feel, and it was a almost rote conveyor belt stuff to, to, at some point. But there were these cool ideas, and he had an ability to hit on these common themes that would drive you know the, the narrative through and, and enough good characters enough good stuff to do that so and i think it must have been doing something right you know it's it's a cultural touchstone even today i don't think there's many people that would if you said to them night rider i think most people have heard of it in some way shape or form it's still a relevant meme it's still irrelevant it's, it's referenced in themes and it's relevant in films it's theme tune is used as a ringtone i think in ted or ted 2 i think or some film like that so that it's it's still about i i think that the reception and influence of this and that ability to you know have a whether it's kit whether it's car that it's that also as well it's a it's a well-worn play on the a buddy a buddy system with and them being different as well and coming to like each other which is what happens in the you know the opening episode so it has that going for it more so than i think the the street order so i gave this an eight for reception and influence what about you yeah i suppose if we're going to look at um Knight Rider. Um, I think I would agree with. I mean, everything you said is is, is right. Um, it did. It, these things either stick or don't. And Knight Rider did stick around. Um, it did, and I think because it it hit the. And I mean, of all the people that knows exactly how to hit his mark, it's Glenn A. Larson with the in terms of how to get you know the right message in the right way at the right speed and convey that in a in a very fast episodic format. You know, they established very quickly what Knight Rider was going to be. And then iterated on it over and over and over again. So, and that Rider did that very, very successfully. Um, and because it, it's relied on, like you say, very a very simple, basic idea, which is, I think, probably if you looked at all of Glenn A. Larson's stuff, that's where the core success lies. Um, they didn't rely on lots of expensive, lavish production. They just kept it like, like we've already said, they kept it pretty rote. But so that meant that they could produce them quickly efficiently and stick to the stories and the stories they created get pretty interesting as they go considering it is just a guy in a futuristic car that talks to him but they there's a relationship they developed there these episodes but you know and they, they elaborated on it quite well and in doing that kept it quite interesting for quite a number of years it lasted longer than most of these things do but remember that Battlestar Galactica never went nearly that length and Mad Rogers no. that we looked at last time no, so I think um and it's obviously you know the music still because it's that it is that classic 80s music and it has that classic vibe it's still very memorable for that and of course David Hasselhoff later went on to become well, it was quite a big star, but he's now obviously revered and, you know, he kind of wears his 80s pants in a big way, doesn't he? So, you know, yes. he's kind of a big character and he really kind of got into it. So, you know, he, he gave everything, he gave the role of Michael Knight and all the other, you know, when he went into Baywatch later, but he gave it his all. You know, and, he, and he is kind of playing it almost seriously, but there's a little bit of tongue in cheek about it and, it. and that kind of works. And the relationship between him and Kit 
kind of works and you get it. And even though it's a robotic voice and a guy in, in a car and Michael sort of talking to it and there's that kind of interplay, it works better than Jesse and Norman's interplay between two actual people. Mm-hmm. So in yes. that street hook. So, so I think, yeah. And so I gave, um, I gave Knight Rider a, a good score for its reception because it's something that p- people still watch and talk about to this day, all the crappy, you know, remakes and reboots aside that came out. So I actually gave that a seven. Okay. That. Okay. We'll give it a seven. I'm happy so with that. So with Street Hawk, then, we have a bit of a different tale. Street Hawk, Street Hawk is a tale of woe, mm-hmm. um, because Street Hawk didn't last nearly as long for lots of different reasons. Really, in actuality, Street Hawk was killed by bad scheduling, which a lot of these TV shows were. Scheduling because it was um, scheduled at a bad time, because another show suddenly became popular. I think Call to Glory, we said, became more popular, so they just sort of shoved it in a different slot. Now, as we said when we spoke about Bart Starr and um, Book Rogers, the scheduling for these things was everything. If you don't put these shows at the right time, you're not going to get the right audience. You're not going to attract the right people. And it's just going to die a death, especially when you're up against something like Knight Rider at a certain point. Now, oddly, even though um, Street Hawk was syndicated to over 42 countries in the world. So it's, it's, it's gone right around the world, wow, Street Hawk. that's a lot. Considering, that, considering there's only 14 episodes of it. Hmm. And all of those episodes, including the pilot, are basically the same thing over and over and over again, which is the key problem with street hawk is that because the interplay between the characters isn't very good and the main lead isn't very charismatic you're then relying on the motorbike and that is a motorbike now motorbikes are you know amazing for people that like motorbikes but they just doesn't it doesn't carry you can't carry an entire series based on a motorbike that really doesn't have any powers of its own remember kit could talk and it had its own personality the motorbike didn't have any of that it was norman which was just you know a balding middle-aged engineer (laughs) So they they sort of misfired really with the with how that came about and because of that it just didn't land it just didn't capture enough people which is all the greatest stunts and all of the shit cinematog- cinema you know the way it was shot the cinemat- cinematography and the all of that and the you know the futuristic music and all of that it had the ingredients of a great film if it had fleshed it out but not a great TV show and that's demonstrated in that the pilot is a kind of a mini it's, if they'd have extended the pilot a little bit and added a bit more to it you'd have had a probably a good maybe a good movie about a, a, a kid that gets as an accident and gets on a motorbike but this was never going to make it to more than 14 episodes because where do you go with that and that's kind of what now the fans kind of as they always are this fans of street hook and they resurrect these things and there was there was actually a massive pitch i think in the, in the late 90s i think to try and get bring it back even led by the guy that played jesse he was like you know at one point going yeah bring it back never happened no. um because there was never a desire for it um and there was never i don't think another super powered motorbike show ever again either which tells you that maybe just they tried it and it is never going to work so you end up with this sort of thing only really going to be kept alive by the fans and by its releases. And of course, it was released on VHS. It was then, I think the DVD has been released as sooner as, I think, back in 2010. They released a complete box set, four DVD box set featuring all you know episodes. Wow. And a new documentary and stuff like that. An unaired part of the pilot where it's, you know, street ox shot with different colored laser beams. Wow. Um, <laughs> but that's it. There were some limited toys, um, including some Kenner toys. And, and they're all very similar. When I looked into it, they're all very Evil Knievel style. So, and, and it actually tells you about the reason why, in a kind of a sort of very neat way, why a show about a super-powered motorbike, if he's not doing evil Knievely type stuff, what can you do with it? Yeah. Because if you've got yeah. if you've got a car, mm-hmm. toy car, you can broom the car without, for want of a better description, 
and the cow's going to zoop, zoop, you know, scoot off. You can ram it up things. Um, sounds painful. You can ramp it up ramps, um, and you can, but you can, you can control the cow just by pushing it around. I know it sounds daft to say it, but motorbikes you can't because it's two wheels, so they don't have the same brummability play factor with a toy that a car does. It simply doesn't. Yeah, just for the yeah. sake. So you know, if I think back to when I had all my um, toy cars when I was little, I didn't have toy motorbikes. I had little toy dinky cars and corgi cars. Because you can scoot them about really easily. Yeah. So then you've got sort of the you know the fact that the people in it aren't particularly likable, really. And so it doesn't. It just you can sort of see why the recipe for visual bits of it visually compelling was there, but everything else lets it down. And so it didn't have really much of a reception in terms of influence. The title track went on an album that wasn't even called Street Orc. So yeah, and, exactly. You know, the, the stars you know, were lost in the bits of time. The guy that played Norman's more famous for his appearance in Sword and the Sorcerer, for me anyway, than anything else. <laughs> and the guy that played Jesse, well, you know, if you can sense, you know, name me three TV stars from 80s, um, show, famous 80s shows, you're going to get, you know, B.A. Barakas, you're going to get Michael Knight. You, you, that's what you're going to get. It mm-hmm. was completely forgettable. And no matter how much the fans really want to make another one, there is no mileage in it. And they proved it in tests. So for me, <laughs> um, sadly, the exception and influence of Street Hawk for me is a four, because I just don't think it had any. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, my, my, I just to sort of final notes on that. I thought the, th- the thing with Street Hawks, it demonstrates more the reception and influence of Knight Rider than it does of its own influence. It's clear that this was created in the wake of the former, you know, and, yeah. and the fact that you know, so the Knight Rider's influence is creating Street Hawk. <laughs> yeah, because you know, it's like, well, well, let's have another. Well, what, we've got a car. Let's try it with a yeah. bike. And so, okay, and that says everything you need to say about it. It yeah. also is like I think it lacks. Um, as you've already said, what did you do with it? It lacks the traveling loner aspect of Knight Rider. Instead, it tries to do the vigilante outside of the law angle in the single location, but it obviously that didn't resonate mm. with the public. I don't think that will no. resonate with the public. I think that no. kind of thing works okay in a single film. You punish a, make you make, make you new Punisher shows, maybe sort of thing, but they're short and they're Netflix based. But those kind of vigilante films, because at the time you had things like Exterminator and stuff like that, you know, you want to look at those kind of revenge single yeah, yeah, things. Yeah. But but drawing it out over multiple episodes, it, I don't think it really works. So th- that's my problem. So as much as cinematic as this, and I think you're right, there's a there's a decent film in this. It maybe I don't know if we're gonna maybe somewhere down the line if we do Blue Thunder and Airwolf, we might look into we might see the same issues because I think what you've got here is an interesting idea for a film as a one-off and it's shot like a film, but then it's it also has to wear the uh, weight of being a pilot for a TV series. And I don't think that really works. I think if this was like a, you know, an hour and a half long, then you're 40 yeah, minutes yeah. before you get to Street Hawk make, might make sense. Makes sense, yes, yes. But, for, but 40 yeah. minutes in an, in an hour 10, yeah, like you've got half an hour left of the thing. Yeah. So, and, 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 you know, the fact that there's really nothing since, you know, Street Hawk's been cast to the, winds of you know forgetfulness yeah, yeah, no one yeah. no one really cares yeah. about it there's some fans of course there'll be some fans of it of course there will be um i give it yeah, a three so oh well uh, yeah okay um and then you know what I'd, i'll go to a three because i just don't i don't think it, i think it's in the manimal auto man camp for me um you know it's it's a, it's it's to watch the first pilot is interesting beyond that i just think nah yeah it hasn't hooked me in no it's the same thing week in week out whereas i know night rider is he goes to a different place but because there's different place different town different things um and things like that and he's not going to be able to do stuff that michael knight does in kick kick flies through buildings and smashes into stuff he can't do any of that on that motorbike he has to stop and get off and no, it's, <laughs> I mean, what, like I said, like I said when we were chatting about it, once he gets knocked off that bike, he's just a guy in a suit. He doesn't do it. Do, he's got no extra abilities on there. All the abilities are the bikes. So yeah, he's, no, and, and he's got a gun that fires rubber bullets. He's useless. He's useless. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the same could be said, with Michael Knight. But he's in the car. You're in the car. 
Yeah, but he he can talk to Kit, doesn't he? Kit knows and monitors him, and he goes and checks. And normal ain't doing any of that. He just calls the police in the in the pilot. He calls the police. I know. Yeah, he's just constantly moaning as well. He's constantly moaning, Norman. Yeah, he's yeah, because he's built this anyway. superbike, and then he's like, "Don't don't break it or harm me. You can't do that. You can't be treating my motorbike like that." And then he says, "I have a dream to have one of these in every police station." It's like, oh, yeah, no, because bit. you'd be a nightmare. You'd have to be like. <laughs> You'd, you know, you'd, you'd be, be like, don't, yeah, don't drive them at speed. Uh. Yeah. And also as well, it's stupid that it takes 10 seconds to engage hyperspeed mode. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that 10 seconds is actually kind of critical. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. the bit where you're the, the person you're chasing is getting away yeah. and you've lost yeah, them. absolutely. So there we have it. So if we have a quick scores on the doors, where are we at? Well, we've got Knight Rider with a grand total in the end of 31 points from a possible 50. Street Hawk, not far behind, but it is behind with a 27. So right. that's well, where then. we got. Well, then we have a winner. And our winner is Michael Knight and his very famous Knight Riding. So yeah. uh, so it's the, the Knight Rider is the winner. I guess I kind of could have called that maybe before we started this. Not because I, I play favourites. I try not to when we start these, when we do watch these things. I try and watch them with a complete open mind. But mm. as you progress through, even with its rote direction, you kind of feel that the Larson machine was in more effect than the Street Hawk machine. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's David Hasselhoff is, you know, he's, he's sleek. He's always going to be a winner. He's Absolutely. Sleek. And then there's a reason why there's a, there isn't a, uh, an episode or a TV show called Top Gear for motorbikes. It just you know, it doesn't exist. So no, I think that's no. I think that's because maybe there's one on some score cable channel, but you know, I think there's is, a reason yeah. why. I think and they, yeah, they're, I'm sure they're exciting for people that are on them. But as soon as you take him off that motorbike, and because he doesn't have anything else to do, he's just a guy with a bad knee. That's not that's not very exciting, <laughs> is it? Which he carefully loses as well. That bit where he gets attacked in the garage and he does that incredible jump over the bonnet, over the bonnet <laughs> does, boot yeah. of the car. Like nothing yeah, wrong does, with his yeah. knee at that point. No, he's nothing. He's faking it. Okay, so well, that was there in our. In our battle of the pilots for Knight Rider versus Street Hawk, I'm afraid Knight Rider carefully ran over Street Hawk, knocked him off his bike, <laughs> and uh, left him with a bad knee. <laughs> Knight, and Michael Knight was asleep at the wheel, so we didn't know anything about it. Absolutely. Didn't even hear it. <laughs> didn't to be hear deaf. It. And of course, <laughs> and he, his car wouldn't have had a sign, any sign of scratches because it's almost, almost indestructible. indestructible. Almost, almost indestructible. <laughs> so there we have a winner. Crazy. Street Hawk well, is not. That's it. I'm afraid uh, Michael Knight rules the roost. He wins the day. There you go. That's how it works around here. It um, is. So, th- so that leaves us to uh, to finish up. Um, unless there's anything else you wanted to add? No. Uh, well, just to add on our normal stuff. Obviously, this is our sister podcast to our main uh, other podcast, which is Zap to the Past, which, um, you know, if you're listening to this on that feed, you're probably already listening to. Uh, but that's where we look at, we're going through every single pretty much C64 game made. Um, yeah. We're up to episode 70 odd or something like that. 75. 75, yeah. We've done... We've done loads um so there's that if you wish to support us if you enjoy this if you enjoy Commodore 64 if you enjoy retro stuff and we'll probably get you know doing more you can get this early if you're listening to this on the main feed you could have had this some time ago i don't know when when you could have had it weeks ago well yeah sometime but um by joining our patreon uh, we do have a patreon where you can come and join our discord chat about all the stuff that we've got going on get the episodes early um ask us questions for our ask the podcast stuff give us um your thoughts on when we do our roundup of the year and our breadbin awards all that kind of stuff goes on um and you can get that very easy by just going to patreon.com forward slash zapped to the past um and you find that there and, you, and that's just four pound four pound fifty it is or a pound if you just want to throw in a pound and that's all cool and we would have really appreciate that to keep 
us going and, and keep us uh, supported and pay for server costs and all that kind of thing. That's about it. I don't know if you've got anything else. No, that's it. Just remember that um, we do encourage you to go and check out these pilot episodes if you want to. I'm sure you can find them out there. We do. And we obviously... We view these and watch these things so you don't have to, but I would actually encourage you to go and try them out anyway, just for the sake of giggles, because there are some moments in both of these and all of these pilots that will genuinely have your side split in. They don't all <laughs> yeah, they age are, yeah. so well, do they? Don't they don't. So well. Do we know what we're going to do next? Do we have a plan for our next one? I don't, one? actually. We, we don't. It might be, do we go to vehicles or are we going to look at some, you know, something else? I don't know. It's a little bit out there. I'm it sort is. of leaning towards, you know, looking at the big 80s vehicle types first and well, we know what's coming. Maybe there's two helicopters that need a bit of a battle, but uh, or maybe have to have a debate oh, about that and see where we're at. It might be quite yeah. nice. Or just bionic people. Bionic people. You know, there's, there's a bionic man, there's a bionic woman. They could just try and see who's the most bionic. I don't know which, where we go with that. But. <laughs> so, well, we did have the we had the Oscar Goldman connection in this one. We did, yeah. So it, it, it could be the bionic man. Yeah, it absolutely could be the bionic man and versus bionic woman. Might be Airwolf versus Blue Thunder. We don't know yet, do we? Or it could be something else. Depends what we feel like. It could be Cagney and Lacey (laughs) versus Hunter. We haven't decided yet, but we will. And when we do, we'll be back with another episode of Battle of the Pilots until that moment occurs. I have been Graham Radding. And I have been Adrian Mills. And you have been listening to Battle of the Pilots. And you heard Knight Rider win. Let's see who wins next time. Adios. Bye. Thank you kindly for listening to the Battle of the Pilots podcast brought to you by the team behind Zap to the Past. We sincerely hope you enjoyed this feisty look and comedic dive, indeed an out-and-out dust-up, between two classic pilot episodes that have graced our TV screens from over the last 50 years. We will, of course, return with another exciting and no doubt challenging episode. Until then, you can download this podcast and others from the zaptothepast.com website, as well as listen on all good podcasting apps such as Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, Audible, Player FM, and, well, you know, those kind of things. The Battle of the Pilots podcast is written and produced by Adrian Mills and Grain Raddings and recorded at Flaky Bits 2.0 Studio. And please do remember, all opinions expressed throughout the podcast are those of the writers. Now, go and watch something new on TV. You never know. It could be the start of something brilliant. 